Ashley, I think the thing that's been bugging me is that Power Rangers fans say Disney didn't care, and yet we watched an entire decade that obviously had money poured into it. Do you have anything about this? Well, clearly production did care a lot about this show, and Jetix Europe certainly did. Uh, but you have to remember that the Power Rangers were up against the most formidable villain that they have ever faced. Mesagog? No, though he is terrifying. Lothor? <laughs> no, 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 no. Vengex. No, think more corporate. Jeffrey Katzenberg? What? He wasn't even with Dizzy at the... Never mind. Sid, this goes beyond Power Rangers. Who is worse than Jeffrey Katzenberg and is probably the villain of nearly half of every defunct land video? Oh, shit. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. on Streets of Fire, Sid. And I'm the glass cliff Angela Shapiro was shoved off of, Ashley. And this is Ranger Swain, where Sid, lifelong Power Rangers fan, takes Ashley, Power Rangers sophomore, through the world of Power Rangers. Since we finished the second decade of Power Rangers, time to take a look back at this era with our big gay overview. And oh, is it big and is it gay? Is it gay? So, I I have a feeling that because, you know, this was a little... Well, not only was because this involved Disney, and you can find anything on Disney, but also, like, two decades ago ago with the internet and everything, this has been a little bit more easier to research, but at the same time, uh, Ashley has a Pepe Sylvia chart for you. Yes, I do. Okay, so first of all, so we kind of had a misconception for a really long time about the Disney buyout, and that... I think Sid had come with the belief when we initially came into this that Disney was interested in Saban's catalog for everything else but Power Rangers, specifically their anime and all of that. I cannot tell you how wrong that was. Yeah, this is this is like the this is the big blowaway moment. This what yeah. what, what we have grown to believe as Power Ranger fans has has been wrong. Yeah, like I, I I'm certain maybe some of that had the appeal, but. That was not, that was not it, even close. So, a lot of what I'm sourcing from here is the book uh, Disney War by James B. Stewart. Now, if you are a watcher of any videos on Disney history, especially corporate history, this book has probably come up several times. And that's for a reason. It is the most detailed um, account of Michael Eisner's tenure at Disney. And when I say, te- like, most detailed, I mean this book is nearly 600 pages. Yeah. And that's including index and sources of where you can go to find particular bits of Disney history under Michael Eisner. Now, when I was reading this book, I came, I, I kind of had my own conspiracy theory here, but maybe not conspiracy theory so much as a particular domino effect that... Uh, nobody else has really considered up until this point. 
and that is that Michael Eisner is responsible for the creation of Power Rangers, and Power Rangers is uh, responsible for his downfall. So, let me explain. So, if we go back to kind of the beginning of uh, Jeffrey, not Jeffrey Katzenberg, though Jeffrey Katzenberg was involved in <laughs> the beginning of this. So, when Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg came to the company in 1984, there was initially kind of this weird push and pull where they didn't really understand the animation department and didn't really think about, didn't really understand why animation was there in the first place. Until, like, they started working on The Little Mermaid and realized, oh, this could make us a whole lot of money. And this is actually really good. So, in about 1988-1989, there was specifically, they decided that they were going to put some of the animators that weren't getting as much work in, working on what the, the block we now know as Disney Afternoon. So, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, DuckTales... Tailspin, I'm forgetting one, Darkwing Duck, like those classic like shows that we associate with like kind of like late 80s Disney that also like the creators of DuckTales 2018 also super fucking love. Um, so those kind of got started under very early on in Katzenberg's reign. Uh, did you mean Katzenberg or Eisner? Sorry. No, this was Eisner. Okay, yeah, you, you, you slipped up and said Katzenberg. It's okay. And those for those first couple of years, they were kind of like attached at the hip. Yeah. So first ten years, they were attached at the hip, and then everything else kind of went downhill after Frank Wells died. So basically, what they did with Disney Afternoon is twenty, and it's described in the book. 20th Century Fox owned the Metro Media chain of TV stations, and Eisner persuaded his old friend and colleague, Barry Diller, to program Disney Afternoon on his fledging Fox network. Disney Afternoon soon became Disney's most profitable television venture, earning $40 million a year. So, Barry Diller is going to be important here, because several years later... As Fox as a network is building up, and if you watch Early Simpsons, you know kind of the whole joke about um, that the Simpsons saved the Fox network. Well, fake it and um, sell it to the Fox network. They'll buy yes, anything. Exactly. They'll buy They'll anything. Buy anything. <laughs> so several years later, Disney ends up buying a television station in California called KCAL. And it's this is where the drama truly starts. And I'm just going to read directly from the book here. Eisner had also managed to convert his former boss and friend, Barry Diller, into a bitter enemy. Just like, just as with Larry Gordon, um, who Larry Gordon allegedly fucked him on Streets of Fire. <laughs> um, Diller and Eisner had stopped speaking and were going to elaborate lengths to avoid each other in public. The feud began when Disney bought a Los Angeles television station named, named it KCAL and wanted to air Disney Afternoon, the block of children's programs being carried by Diller's Fox affiliates, including one in Los Angeles. Eisner and had Katzenberg called Diller. In Diller's recounting of the discussion, Katzenberg said, we want to renegotiate Disney Afternoon or taking away the LA market. Diller was shocked. They had a contract. That's not fair, he protested. I know you bought an LA station, but give us two or three years to replace this. Let's be reasonable. Diller called Eisner, who refused. We were there for you when we needed us, Diller reminded him, pointing out that he'd bought the he'd bought the original programming for Disney Afternoon. Eisner still refused. Okay, then we're out of business, Diller said. Fox promptly dropped Disney Afternoon from all its wholly owned stations and encouraged affiliates to do the same. Then it developed its own series of cartoon programs, including the wildly successful Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Disney Afternoon never recovered from the blow. 
So, oh my god! Now, from our previous overview, we know the backstory of how Power Rangers came to be at Fox Kids, and there was a little bit more detail. I think there was an interview that Margaret Lesh did with like the Museum of Television, and we'll link. I'll find it and we'll link it in the show notes. Um, where she kind of gave more details than she did in the Toys That Made Us episode, where um, she was meeting with Heim and she was going over a bunch of cartoons that he had and she's like you know i need something different and he was like one moment walked out of the room came back with the tape for bio man and she recognized it i think jamie kellner was her boss at the time at fox kids and like you know that whole back and forth we all know the backstory on that this leads into you know kind of the power rangers empire created at fox kids where um Margaret Lesh was the head of programming, came up with the whole affiliate program. Uh, Saban basically owned the entire block with Power Rangers, which I think at the time Disney bought it out was like, had about five, was had generated about $5 billion in merchandising. It was, it was a juggernaut. It was a juggernaut. And then like, obviously we all know about Saban's other attempts to make Power Rangers happen again. And, like, the varying, like, ways that Power Rangers almost died several times during that era. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that eventually led to Lesh kind of encouraging Saban to join up with News Corps to buy out the Family Channel and turn into Fox Family. And we kind of know more of the story behind that is that she kind of eventually got forced out after the purchase, which uh, was... What for one point three billion dollars, if I remember correctly? So it was a one point three billion dollar purchase that I think Saban paid partially for by like taking on their debt and getting money lent to him. But basically, he was in charge of programming at Fox Family and forced Lesh out. And eventually, after about three or four years, then realized it was a money sink. They decided, okay, we're going to go ahead and put this back on the market. <laughs> this is where my theory of Saban is just, he has a gambling issue or something, like, but he definitely loves to gamble. But because he mm-hmm. has so much money, he does it with children's programming. Yeah, so this brings us to the Fox Family deal Disney made. And it is, uh, it's a doozy. So... The story you're going to read in most publications about this particular deal is that Eisner, that Eisner, Saban, and Rupert Murdoch all walked into a room at the Sun Valley Conference in Ohio. No, Idaho. Sun Valley, Idaho. So they all walked into the Sun Valley Conference in Idaho, walked into a room. 20 minutes later, they came out with a deal that they were going, that Disney was going to buy the Fox Family Channel for $5.3 billion. It's a little bit more complicated than that. <laughs> and it all kind of goes back to Stanley Gold. Um, and first of all, it is that they they obviously did recognize that this was kind of the network that Power Rangers built. But they weren't interested in Power Rangers. They were interested in the network itself. Oh, yeah. So basically, at the time, a lot of other media conglomerates were buying up other little things. So, like, Disney wanted to kind of get their own thing to buy they decided, well, why don't we just get a basic cable channel that we can air other ABC programming on? Like, run repeats of ABC programming, 
kind of have it as a feeder network, kind of that kind of vibe. So Stanley Gold is part of the Disney board and he's the chief executive of Shamrock Holdings, which is kind of part of the Disney conglomerate that deals a lot with the money. And so he, uh, Stanley Gold is friends with Haim and offers to go to Saban first to kind of help broker that deal with Eisner. So his first time he goes and hangs out with Haim, calls Eisner and says, he wants 5.5 billion, he said to Saban. I can't get there. I can go to 5 billion, but not 5.5. Should I see if that gets a response, Gold asks? Yeah, why don't you? Late the following night, Gold met with Saban at his house in Beverly Hills. We can go north of 5 billion, but not 5.5, he said. Saban was noncommittal, but the next day when he spoke to colleagues, he could barely contain his glee. (laughs) So the reason this deal was kind of in a weird place is because one of the things that had happened with the Family Channel is that they had this deal with uh, MLB to air most of their games. And uh, it was not a ratings juggernaut because, uh, as it said in the book, baseball mostly airs in the afternoon when there's not really a whole lot of time that people spend watching TV. And plus they had also just bought out ESPN as well uh, when they bought out ABC. When uh, Fox Family had uh, bought the rights to most Major League Baseball games, liability that was estimated to cost $700 million over the remaining life of the contract. Borenstein and others at ESPN thought this was grossly overpriced, considering that most games aired in the afternoon when the potential for an audience for baseball was small. Uh, the deal had proved to be a huge financial drain for Fox. Uh, Iger told Gold that Saban should understand that Disney's offer for something over $5 billion contained the proviso that Disney would not assume the Major League Baseball contract. If so, it would have to cut the price by a billion dollars. So Gold told Saban, just so there's no misunderstanding, if we have to eat the baseball deal, we're a billion lower. Saban was silent. Then he said, oh, Stanley, you're going to love baseball. <laughs> so cut to the Sun Valley Conference. Michael met with Hyman Murdoch, and we're about to deal, uh, Murphy explained. And this is Peter Murphy, who is um, another Disney executive. How much, Gold asked. $5.3 billion. That's without baseball, Gold asked. Murphy said nothing. Peter, is it with or without baseball? There was silence again. Finally, Murphy said, with baseball. What the hell is going on, Gold exclaimed. You know Michael, Murphy said. That Sunday, Steve Borenstein learned that Disney was buying Inc. Fox Family, the first that anyone at anyone at ABC had heard of the deal. On Monday, July 23rd, Borenstein briefed uh, key ABC executives, including Mark Pedowitz, the lawyer in charge of business affairs with the network. What are we going to do with it? Pedowitz asked. They want to repurpose ABC shows, Borenstein explained. Disney would rebroadcast shows that had already aired on ABC. Did anyone realize we don't have the rights to do that? Pedowitz asked, evidently the first time anyone had asked him about the legal feasibility of uh, rerunning programs produced by others who retained the syndication to rebroadcast rights. Borenstein just looked at him and shrugged. Yeah, so... (laughs) This is is fantastic. (laughs) Yes, so essentially Disney paid $5.3 billion dollars for ABC, fam- what would be soon become ABC Family, with barely a plan of what they were going to do with the network. And this also took on all of Haim Saban's assets and the Fox Family Library. So all of Power Rangers, anything Saban had produced or had his name on, so that included stuff like Metabots, uh, Digimon Frontier. Digimon, in period. Digimon Frontier came later. 
Okay, sorry. So yeah, yeah. Digimon, it's like tons of anime, basically, because tons. Yeah, Saban was one of the big. Even in the eighties, mm-hmm. he was like, a, as Kurt explained in our other episode, he brought over a lot of anime over here, and anime was getting into a boon and everything. And because yeah. stuff like Digimon was airing on like Fox Kids at the time, mm-hmm. like he got basically they got all that, and it, oh, you you'll see it with Jet X, basically. Yeah. So, and this was, I want to say, 2000, and the deal was not finalized until 2001. Now, 9-11 has to do with many things around this time. Did put the deal into jeopardy, um, but it ultimately they just shaved $100 million off the price tag. So, Disney's final buyout price was $5.2 billion, and Heim Saban walked away with $1.5 billion. To this day, that is still one of the biggest payouts anybody has received for a deal like that you can't read like Haim saban's poker face you really can't <laughs> like and like i've read so many articles about saban during this era and when he bought power rangers back and people will just talk about how like he is very charming and very manipulative <laughs> and like and specifically like apparently when he went into the meeting with eisner it specifically said Eisner had brought up the baseball rights, but had quickly given in when Saban had bluffed and told him he had to take it or leave it. Saban told them the deal had been concluded in less than an hour meeting with Eisner. I'm like, either Heim Saban is, like, either rolled super high on his charisma when he, like, made his character sheet, or Michael Eisner is just that gullible. I think it's both. (laughs) It's a little bit of both. And so it's just that perfect storm. So basically for about a year, Fox Family was on a spending freeze during this finalization of the deal, meaning that anything over, any project they wanted to develop over $10 million had to get approval, and it was not likely it was going to get approval. So it was just sort of this weird, like, limbo state where nothing was really getting done. And, like, it kind of goes back to my theory about the reason that they didn't really promote... Los Luchadores when it was on was because they're just like, well, you know, we're not going to be able to really spend money on TV shows anymore anyway, so why bother? Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so Fox Kids itself as an entity existed until 2002. And then um, for family itself, there was so much drama around it. Um, basically to try to quickly summarize, which it's hard to do because there's so much, is that when Michael Eisner brought the buyout to the board, um, they all unanimously approved it based on projections that he provided. And then projections came up very, very short afterwards, um, because they had trouble with programming because obviously they couldn't reprogram a lot was that was on ABC because they didn't own the syndication rights. Um, and so, and they struggled with, so they struggled with programming in that regard. They couldn't get rid of Pat Robertson. <laughs> oh, God. They still can't get rid of Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson's just like, I've latched onto the family channel. You can't get rid of me. Yeah, and then, like, allegedly, so according to multiple sources at this point, like, um, they couldn't, okay. So, uh, Angela Shapiro, who is a executive at Disney, was brought on, and she works specifically in the cable group with, like, SoapNet and all of that. 
Uh, she was brought on to kind of help reprogram ABC Family, um, just to, so that they would they could kind of move it in a better direction to kind of um, give it an identity. And um, it's sort of just this really insane thing where she keeps trying to pitch these ideas and kind of keeps getting stonewalled. Uh, like she pitched it initially to kind of be like um, a women's network, kind of similar to Lifetime and called it Pink. But th she got shot down because uh, they had a partial stake in Lifetime at the time. And it'd be a conflict of interest, quote, quote. Uh, and then she pitched it as a kind of a, a hip and happening like youth network called XYZ because it would be a bookend to ABC. It's like, I thought that was a pretty cool idea. And like marketing was like, Disney was super behind it. But then they were told, oh, well, the cable providers that already hate you because they think that you are kind of just trying to raise the price on a network that was already failing. The cable, like, like they were told, oh, cable providers might not carry the channel if it doesn't specifically have family in the name. Oh, no. Yeah, which uh, apparently, according to more recent, because um, the, the network did eventually rebrand as Freeform about five years ago. I forget who was the head of the network at the time, but he basically said, oh, that was an urban legend. That was never an issue. I'm like... I've read so many sources saying that. <laughs> but this bit about, like, Angela Shapiro just always gets me, specifically in the book. As she paused, there was silence in the room. Finally, Eisner spoke. Angela, I need you to look at me. Either you're totally exaggerating and these numbers are not aggressive, or you're saying we really overpaid for this channel. Shapiro paused to ponder her alternatives, and as everyone in the meeting practically held their breath, there was no good response. I'm waiting for an answer, Eisner said. Shapiro took a brief breath. I had nothing to do with the purchase of this channel, she said. I can't speak to the reasoning or the purchase price. All I can tell you is that the numbers are more than incredibly aggressive. And this is like the third or fourth time she's said this in this presentation. Eisner frowned and then seemed resigned. He stood up. I hear what you're saying. I don't envy you, he said. You have a really bad job. And then he walked out. So, yeah, uh, Family Channel was kind of in trouble. Yeah. This went so much deeper, I think, than a lot of... I think it's because, you know, we want to write this narrative, and I'll go into it later, about, like, oh, well, Disney didn't care, Disney didn't care. And Saban even plays into this narrative, um, as we'll get probably to the, to the next decade. Uh, but it's like, you look into this, it's like, no, this was a money sink. This was something Eisner did that was fucking stupid. Yeah, and it's like, already at the time Saban owned this network, it was a money sink. Yeah. And, like, he just got somebody else to buy the money sink off of him. And, like, Power Rangers was still obviously going on at the time because Angel Shapiro, in desperate need of programming, would just program a block of Power Rangers in the morning. Yeah, Power Rangers and, like, Generations, because you own the whole library, might as well show some old episodes and the new se and the new series. Yeah, and then um, also repeats of The Bachelor were also a big thing on the network early in that time period because they actually own the syndication rights to that. I, I vaguely remember that, yes. Yeah, and like... They kept trying to, like, get them to repeat TGIF, but they only had three programs to do that, one of them being Alias. Oh, no. <laughs> like, so that didn't work. And they just did a lot of, like, repeat, like, 
reality show concept similar to The Bachelor. <laughs> um, but then you kind of get into the valuation of the Family Channel. And this is probably when stuff really hits the fan. A small group of finance executives from the Family Channel and Disney's tax department began working with an outside consulting firm that specialized in valuation. By this point, no one inside Disney was pretending that the channel and related assets were worth more than worth anywhere near the 5.2 billion Disney had paid Murdoch and Saban. Still, even they were startled by the conclusions. According to the internal valuation report that resulted, the net present value of the cable channel was $1.378 billion. The calculations were complex, but the report estimated that Disney could realize about $400 million in tax savings, which would go directly to the bottom line. Based on this analysis, $3.2 billion of the purchase prices allocated the channel, the rest of the programming, and other assets, which means that Disney had overpaid by approximately $1.8 billion for the channel alone. Disney had already written off uh, $308 million for the value of the library. And so they tried to go to Eisner to do a write-down of this, and he's like, no, we're not doing that. Oh, my God. And then, so we skip forward to when Roy Disney resigned from the board. And so in the background of all of this, Roy Disney and Michael Eisner had beef for years. Because particularly Michael Eisner was very much about the business side, even though he's like, oh, I'm a creative person. No. And a lot of his creative ideas were like, oh, no, we should change the ending of the Tarzan musical to be more like Edgar Rice Burroughs' original book. Yeah, I, I think if you watch enough Defunct Land, you would know Michael Eisner's not that creative of a person. Right. And like <laughs> a lot of his ideas were based on what he thought his son Breck would like. <laughs> Breck. Anyway, so I, but, and then of course, Roy Disney wanted to be more like kind of the original days of Disney, for better or for worse. So anyway, when uh, Roy Disney resigns from the board in 2003, sorry, I had to look up. So when Roy Disney resigns from the board in 2003, he writes, and this letter is publicly available online because Disney is a publicly traded company. You know well that you and I have had serious differences of opinion about the direction and style of management in the company in recent years. For whatever reason, you have driven a wedge between me and those I work uh, with, even to the extent of requiring some of my associates to report my conversations and activities back to you. I find this intolerable. Skip a paragraph. Michael, I believe your conduct has resulted from my uh, clear and unambiguous statements to you and the board of directors that after 19 years at the helm, you are no longer the best person to run the Walt Disney Company. You've had a very successful first 10 plus years at the company in partnership with Frank Wells, for which I salute you. But since Frank's untimely death in 1994, the company has lost its uh, focus, its creative energy, and its heritage. As I have said, and as Stanley Gold has documented in letters to you and other members of the board, this company, under your leadership, has failed during the last seven years in many ways. And there's this list of seven grievances uh, that uh, Roy Disney had had about Michael Eisner's tenure. And the first one is, the failure to bring back ABC primetime from the ratings abyss it has been in for years, and your inability to program successfully at the ABC Family Channel. Uh, both of these failures have had, I believe, will continue to have significant adverse effect on the shareholder value. And then the letter at, at the end of his seven grievances 
In conclusion, Michael, it is my sincere belief that it is you who should be leaving and not me. Accordingly, I once again call for your resignation or retirement. The Walt Disney Company deserves fresh, energetic leadership at this challenging time in its history, just as it did in 1984 when I, uh, I headed a restructuring which resulted in your recruitment to the company. I have always had enormous allegiance for, uh, I will always have an enormous allegiance and respect for this company founded by my uncle Walt and my father Roy to our faithful employees and loyal stockholders. I don't know if you and the other directors can comprehend how painful it is for me and the extended Disney family to arrive at this decision. With sincere regret, Roy E. Disney. CC, the board of directors. Sincere regret. Like. Yes. And so when Stanley Gold fo uh, followed up with his own resignation, um, it was, yeah, Fox Family was a constant citation of why, like, he, like, everybody lost faith in Michael Eisner. We tried to give the management the benefit of the doubt. We didn't want to cause a ruckus in the boardroom. Fox Family is the best example. Roy and I voted this based on management's projections. Three months into the deal, we asked, and they said they were behind. We said, hold on, you failed to execute. We tried to make them accountable. We said Michael Eisner and Bob Iger should not get a bonus. When you have this kind of mistake, there should be no bonus. Eisner got $5 million, Bob Iger $4 million. Yes, we voted for things, but we did it on management's projections. And when they failed, we tried to make them accountable. I'm proud of our approach. So skip forward to um, basically the, the share, before the shareholder meeting where Michael Eisner was officially kind of uh, got a giant vote of no confidence. <laughs> um, <laughs> Basically, the this is how CEOs get fired, by the way. Yeah. Yes. Because um, Michael Eisner, I should note, they basically had a giant shareholder meeting in 2003. And I believe it was... Let me see if I can find the final numbers. Because it was sort of... It was one of those things where it's like, God, it's brutal out here. Um... There, let's see. Ultimately, it's determined that 43% of shareholders have withheld their votes from Eisner and 24% from George Mitchell. Even more devastating to Eisner, don't, though not released to the public, 72.5% of Disney cast members voting through their 401k retirement vans have voted no for Eisner. <laughs> A remarkable 63.7% voted against George Mitchell as well. And I should note later that evening he resigned as like he stepped down as chairman and was just left as CEO and was forced to resign by the board two years later. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the higher you get in management, it's it, it's like that. Um, yeah, but before this shareholder meeting, we cut to the offices of Glass Lewis, which is a shareholder advisory service, and so they're meeting with Eisner, uh, Judith Estrin. And I believe a couple of other people, I think they're also meeting with Roy and Stanley Gold as well, and Michael Staggs. Um, and I believe that's Greg Taxon, who is the chief executive of Glass and Lewis. Next, Taxon asked if he wanted, that said he wanted to focus on Fox Family, a deal that Roy and Gold had criticized, but also voted for as board members. Was this their idea, he asked. After a long uh, non-answer from Judith Estrin, Eisner stepped in. Fox Family is the last piece of beachfront property in the nationally distributed cable basic universe, and the company has been looking strategically at these kind of things for years. The entire board was 100% unanimous in the acquisition of Fox Family. Certainly, Mr. Gold was a giant advocate of it. I wouldn't say that he was more or less enthusiastic than management and other or members of the board. One of his closest friends, Haim Saban, was the seller of Fox Family, so we analyzed it. We looked at it. He was helpful in being a conduit between management and seller, and we were together made an acquisition, Taxon continued. 
While we're on the topic of uh, a Fox family, Mr. Staggs, maybe you can tell us. I've heard Eisner said that maybe he paid too much. The company has never taken a write-down of the goodwill associated with the Fox family channel acquisition. Should you have? Might you have, uh, have in the future? Might this lead to a restatement of some of past financial report? This, of course, was a question that took direct aim at one of Disney's most vulnerable points, especially given the valuation study that Staggs himself has commissioned. Well, I hate to state the obvious, uh, Staggs answered, but the company believes it should take a write-down. It would take a write-down. As Michael said, at least over time, we've gotten quite a valuable asset here. <laughs> uh, I should note Glass Lewis has basically said that um, <laughs> Michael Eisner needed to step down. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So yeah, that's the short history of the Family Channel acquisition that ABC went through. That was only part of what I had researched. It is ridiculous. And uh, Power Rangers was just sort of in the middle of it. Yeah, kind of going into this, it's like, I feel like, with and it, this is just with, I think, fandoms in general, but Power Ranger fandom just kind of focused so much, kind of, tunnel vision it's very much like myopic. It's not the entire world of what was going on. They're just like, oh my God, look at what they did to Power Rangers. The toys became shit. Uh, the explosions. You know, it's like, ah, and, you know, obviously they didn't care about it. And they just treated us like a, you know, the franchise's redheaded stepchild. And I'm like, that's very myopic when you look at it. It's like, I, I don't think Disney had an issue with Power Rangers specific. They had an issue with the entire Fox family thing they bought. Yeah, so um, I think their grudge was less against uh, Power Rangers specifically, but <laughs> just the fact that they had, they were stuck with a bad deal that Michael Eisner made well after he was forced to resign from the company. Yeah, and... Because, like, I should know, he was, he was, like, he said he was going to step down in 2006. They forced him to resign in 2005. Yeah. So Power Rangers was still there for about five years after that. Yeah. So, it's one of those things, it's like, yeah, that there's probably, there was hatred and animosity towards the show, but it was for the entire thing they bought and it was just one of the things and it's like well it's doing well with ratings i guess we'll keep it around yeah um though you should note that their way of saving money on it was just moving the entire production to uh new zealand which we'll get into that Th thanks lord of the rings yeah all right so we talked enough about kind of the corporate bullshit that led to us being here so kind of let's talk about well power rangers and yeah. this kind of particular era of power rangers uh so yeah we're gonna get into some of the motifs we've noticed uh one of the things i i've noticed going back doing doing this look and you know having not only a fresh pair of eyes but being like getting close to my late 30s is I've noticed that pa Ty Power Rangers is acting like a time capsule for children's programming for the most part. And so in the 2000s, you were seeing TV move from like syndication to, yeah, these network blocks where you would have a specific time and everything that the show would be on so you could do more serialization. As opposed to the syndicated uh, stuff. You, you see it also watching old Star Trek. Like, 
before I, I want to say before Discovery, because there was a huge gap. Uh, you know, stuff like TNG through Enterprise were very syndicated, but you know, there was still a overarching story with a lot of stuff. But they were mostly like, in case like a network didn't have the set of episodes, you're not going to be totally lost jumping into a random episode, right? In this case, they're moving into basically a giant media conglomerate that owns multiple channels. So you had ABC Family, you had Toon Disney, you had Jetix. Yeah. All of that. Jetix mainly, um, uh, Jetix was mainly like a thing overseas. It was just kind of a block of ABC Family. Right. So, so but even then, it's air like it aired on multiple like Disney owned networks during the time. So, but since it kind of had its more central place on. Uh, was it not Toon Disney or was it Disney Channel? It was mainly ABC Family. Yeah, so since it was mainly ABC Family at the time, like, you could kind of had a central place you could go and, like, watch the new episode on, like, Saturday morning. Yeah. Um. Though, also, it, like, apparently it was also carried by ABC affiliates, though, apparently around 2006 when they changed, the FCC changed some rules, a lot of uh, ABC affiliates dropped it because of lack of FCC compliance about educational content. <laughs> Yet, I, I do believe the uh, RPM was uh, during the ABC years, so. Uh, but, yeah, it was just like, you have that move to the serialization, so. Uh, which, you know, we were seeing a little bit of in, uh, in like, like starting with light speed, I feel, definitely. But, yeah, it was just kind of nice to, like, oh, hey, this is a little bit more, like, modern television where there's, like, overarching plots and plot threads going on that you can tune in every week for. Instead of, this week, we're fighting Pudgy Pig. <laughs> it's like, next week? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> uh, the oyster stew, you know? Right. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we, we, were, no, we were no longer getting series uh, season finales that was oyster stew, you know? Right. Or, or seasons that had, like, 60 episodes. Right. <laughs> like, everything this season was in, like, the 32 to 38 range. Yeah. Like, it was doable. Yeah. So, yeah, because of that, uh, we also have, like, other things going on. Uh, one of the things that was, at, like... I don't think I, I don't think it was the Pacific like a Pacific producer involved or anything, but they looks like they had a mandate to have a civilian power go on because that that was a thing like in this decade was people had powers. Yeah, like I think that stopped around the time of um, Operation Overdrive, like after Operation Overdrive, because like they well they did kind of have the animal spirits in Jungle Fury. But they they were but like but yeah. the the most an animal spirit did was like get corrupted and turn RJ into a furry werewolf. So right. <laughs> so um, and, and like yeah. so it's like it, they're kind of there. Like Dylan technically had a, a a civilian power, quote unquote. But that was because he was half robot, and RPM more had the power. Like everyone's power was when they were morphed. Like right. Super speed, stopping time, all that stuff. It was normally when they were morphed. But yeah, it was like, yeah. starting with Ninja Storm, you had, you know, ninjas that basically had uh, Naruto powers. Because I really think that was an influence on Hurricane Jer, I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I, I have this wind jutsu and all that. 
Um, right. And then Dino Thunder, you had like the Dino powers, like you know Ethan's super tough skin, or um, Kira's scream, you know, or Connor's speed. Cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Connor, he's a really fast boy. He's a really fast boy. <laughs> uh, and it, you just kind of kept going, like, uh, you know, SPD had, you know, they were all, like, mutates, uh, you know, where they all had, like, a mutant power of sorts. Uh, and it, But it just kind of, like, uh, yeah, like, Operation Overdrive was just, like, and we gave you powers, and then we don't even use them. Thanks, Operation Overdrive. <laughs> But it, it was just kind of interesting the way that, uh, like, like I said, it felt like a, may have been a mandate or just may have been like, oh, no, that would be interesting if we did this. And then, like, all, almost every season that had it, it never took off to its fullest potential, I felt. Yeah, like, it was always felt like a case of, like, oh, shit, like, we remember that we have this, so, like, let's do that. Yeah. I will say, though, kind of related to that, I will say that the Battleizers this particular era, when they did do Battleizers, were better-ish. Yeah. Ish. Um. <laughs> I, I, want, like, I wonder if it's half just, you know, actually getting used to Battleizers, uh, mm-hmm. or the other half of, like, we have Disney money. Yeah, though, like, they did drop it by, um, by Jungle Fury, so. Yeah, and replaced with, like, Spirit Rangers, I think, uh, they, mm-hmm. they did that, so. Uh, Which honestly makes more sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I, thank God, it was like, also, uh, I think it was better for Casey's, like, story in the long run for him to not have a battleizer. yeah. Um, kind of related to that, it's also, like, a big thing this particular era is that they had, like, uniforms outside of morphing. Yeah. Like, now, Wild Force itself was kind of on the fence, like, yeah, we grouped it within the Saban era just due to how it was produced. Yeah. But, like, we'd say kind of that started, like, it's it's kind of on the fence of, like, it's kind of half Disney, half Saban. And, like, that kind of started the whole, like, we're going to have uniforms outside this with, like, our sweet jackets. Well, I would say Lightspeed Rescue kind of started it with their sweet jackets. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And then Um, Time Force had uniforms, but they were, like, really vinyl, and they didn't use them that often because of that. Right. But, like, specifically, like, going into, like, this particular era, it just seems like every other, I think... I think the Ranger Wiki pointed out, it's like, every season, except for, like, Dino Thunder, had some sort of, like, uniform that the Rangers would wear, like, when they weren't morphed. It's like, I felt like they, like, like, they, they were looking back or something, and, and, they, and mm-hmm. they were like, wow, that was a cool idea, let's expand on that. Yeah, so you had it in, obviously you had it in Ninja Storm... You had it in where they they did kind of wear those like sleek like black with like the accents like suits when they weren't like out being cool kids or being rangers. Yeah. Oh, uh, though we should note they still kept the color coordination when they weren't like rangered up because this is Power Rangers. This is Power There's rangers. certain things you can't change. I'm not a Power Ranger. You're wearing all red. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you didn't used to be this color coordinated before you were a Power Ranger. <laughs> Um, but, you know, you had that with Ninja Storm, you had that with, um... SPD. SPD, because they kind of had the standard SPD uniform outside of that. Mystic Force gave them kind of, like, when they were in the forest, they had kind of these nice, like, fantasy leathers going on. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, with capes. With capes. They're, uh, oh, God, I want to cosplay one of those one day. Right? They're so good. They're so good. Uh, what, that's like a one thing. It's like a lot of these uniforms, I'm like, I would cosplay those. Um, and Operation Overdrive had kind of the, the like, they, it was very weird because it looked like a, a full, like, onesie uh, tracksuit thing. That I don't know if tracksuit's the right word. It's what you would wear for a race. But, it, it you know, coveralls. But it was really, like, two pieces. Like, it was a pair of pants and a, and a jacket. Uh, they had that, um, kind of the coveralls of, a, like, a race car driver. And then Jungle Fury, uh, when... Well, they had two types of uniforms, because they did have their civilians, but they had, like, the Jungle Karma pizza uniform. <laughs> and they also had, like... When they're just off duty and just like training, they had like a Paishwa uh, coat and they also, I think, had like uh, shorts and, and, a, and a workout shirt. So I'm like, damn, that's coordinated. Yeah. Uh, um, and then finally RPM had the jackets, which they got to keep. Unlike mm-hmm. Princess Shayla at the end of <laughs> <laughs> Wild Force, where she's like, no, hand back the jackets. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> also, like, this was, like, a particular era. We didn't put this in our notes, but I'm thinking of it now where, like, the Rangers ca- had jobs. Like, that was, like, their central place was their job. Yeah, uh, that was, like, a big thing. They went from, like, teenagers with attitudes to the youngest of our group is probably 18. Like, the Rangers yeah. were young adults with jobs and, like, play played and it played into that because i remember like that was a a thing i think i remember from an like the one of the first history of power ranger videos when linkar was going into the second season or, or something and he was like talking about it's like be interesting to see power rangers with you know who are adults and struggling with that more than teenagers and you got to kind of see it in this, this yeah era. yeah i mean obviously like their job was not I would say the job was more of a focus in, like, Jungle Fury, just because, like, their that, ranger hangout was, like, right above the pizza shop. Their their mentor owned the pizza shop, too, so it was kind of like, this was the, this was the, this was RJ's front for his Paishwa uh, Academy. Right. Possibly his head shop, we do not know. <laughs> like start the whole theory that he had like a head shop under like <laughs> the shop like the master like the the master from uh i can't remember his name a vr troopers the VR troopers was i just love that scene it's like that's a head shop <laughs> but uh yeah it's uh you know it's it's one of those like the rockporium uh storm chargers uh spd was entirely their job because they all were, yeah. were cops that lived on the base uh yeah dino center was the only one that did teenagers with attitudes and even then like that it was between the school and their high their like the cafe which yeah trent ended up working for the cafe and stuff so yeah you know you, you got a little bit uh, you you got we moved away from the formula of teenagers with attitudes. Even then, they'll still try to ring in. It's like, and everyone's technically eighteen. I'm like, bitch, please. Right. Sander is twenty one. Right. 
It's like, Ronnie's definitely 24, 23, like, from Operation Overdrive. If you tried to convince me anybody from Operation Overdrive was a teenager, I'd be like, what? What are you talking about? It's like, you could kind of get that away with that with Mac, but also Mac was not a human until the last episode. I mean, they kind of did that with Rose, but she was supposed to be, like, a child genius. So, right. yeah, it made sense that she would be, like, 18 to 21. But everyone else, I'm like, no, don't try to convince me they're, like, 18. No. Yeah, it doesn't work. That, you're, you're, like, shown in, you're, like, show, you're, like, jump in the 80s. We're, like, okay... Uh, everyone in your story has to be between the ages 12 and 16. Which is... So, so yes, Jonathan Joestar is a very jacked 17-year-old. <laughs> he actually did start out as 12, but he was super jacked. And I really love how Rocky went over that, because he's like, Oh yeah, look at this, look at these two very jacked 12-year-olds. Oh, up, oh, time skip! Uh, they are now graduating college. <laughs> Oh, shine oh. on you, crazy diamond, Hirohiko Araki. Yeah. <laughs> but that's also, like, why if you were to look back at a lot of older Jump and even now, it's like, yeah, that's why there's a lot of Jack 12-year-olds in Jump titles. <laughs> the new Invader Zim made that joke. It's like, I'm Dib and I'm 17 years old or something and it's this 30-year-old looking man. Right. <laughs> Um, so kind of moving on with kind of other motifs we've seen during this era is that uh, this is kind of, a, this is interesting because like this particular era really follows the gender uh, lines of the Sentai. Like you don't see a whole lot of gender swapping that we've seen previously. Yeah. And uh, I don't think gender swapping really comes back until very recently with Dino Fury. Right. Uh, with Izzy specifically. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so this particular era, you see a lot of male, uh, yellow rangers and a lot of female blues. And, like, apparently this is, like, the this particular, like, era of episodes is, like, the last time we've seen a female blue ranger for a while. Yeah. I, I feel like blue being a color in Sentai just kind of comes and goes. And, like, right. And the, I, I, it's like, I know there was, like, female blues in the 80s. And then, like, the 90s happened, and it seemed a little less, especially since we have, we can look at Power Rangers and be like, oh, yeah, they didn't really have a lot of, like, blue uh, right. women. And, uh, and then, all of a sudden, like, 2000s, it became Vogue again. Yeah, and it's kind of weird, is that, like, especially people who didn't follow Power Rangers after, like, maybe up to, like, In Space don't realize that this happened um and, and the same thing with like male yellows i feel like the yellow color goes on like goes in vogue off and on mm -hmm. uh because even even though it was a thing in the definitely in the 90s and like the 2000s it felt like off and on that you had a male yellow yeah because i remember like specifically this happened like a couple of months ago was that there was some sort of power rangers meme going around on wrestling old twitter and um, Sazzy Boatwright, who's a wrestler out in um, New York, uh, responded like, why are there, like, dudes that are yellow rangers on this? And our friend Patches was like, I was about to actually tag myself in this. And I was like, yeah, yellow's not a sp gender-specific color yeah. in, in Sentai. It is, they'll swap between... Man, like men and women who have the color. And, like, especially during, like, the Saban era... 
they would just often gender swap the whoever was the yellow ranger was. Yeah. Cuz yellow was a woman's color and then mm-hmm. uh I I wish I could find these ABC trailers but it had to do with like introducing Dustin it was like yellow's no longer a girl color. Uh, okay. Yeah, it was it was I have this very vivid memory of of that advertisement of like Yellow's no longer for girls. We have our first male Yellow Ranger. I'm like, what is this? Yeah, that's... <laughs> oh, man. Okay. The 2000s were a time. Yeah, clearly. I'm just like, wow. The 2000s was definitely a time of, like, turbo masculinity. Yeah. Um, Speaking of turbo masculinity, so kind of because of that... Um. I will say this particular, and we both agree on this, that this particular era of Power Rangers is not very high in race and gender diversity. Yeah, I just, I just remember like watching certain seasons, and it's like, like the Tom Servo bit. Uh, it's from a really bad, I forget which movie, but it's like this really bad like monster movie where the monster is clearly a vacuum cleaner or something. And he, it's right. a social ad, and he's like singing, "We're white, we're really, really white," <laughs> and it's like that's a lot of seasons in this. They just uh, one of the things I've kind of noticed it was just kind of like they would get uh, Pacific Islanders, and then but they wouldn't like actually be like this person is a Pacific Islander. They would just be like ambiguous. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I noticed that as well. And, like, not to say that, like, yeah, there's obviously very diverse casting when Saban happened, but there wasn't a lot of diversity in the writer's room. Yeah. So, like, I... It's one of those weird, I, weird things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like... It's one of those, it's like the 90s was very much about diversity in mm-hmm. a very much shallow way i would like right. to describe it it was very shallow diversity because that is like forced diversity that's a dog whistle shallow yeah. diversity i think is a way of describing it because yeah. they're just like oh well you know you know we understand that there's other you know there's other genders and races we should obviously uh have them in the story i think the bk kids club was like the best example of kind of the shallow diversity yeah, I think that's more of what I was going for, is that there was that shallow diversity in the in the Saban era. But yeah, especially like in Disney era, it just sort of felt like they they weren't really trying that much to kind of c- carry that on. Yeah, it's it just like... <laughs> it felt like, um, you know... They're like, well, this is... like the, Clearly we have this show to appeal to young boys, so we're not going to like... I Try to cast more women in the show, or like... You know we're we're not gonna but we're not gonna bother with our casting directions being any sort of like have any sort of diversity. Yeah, like I mean, granted, I don't know if like specifically with casting directions, like if they specifically said, "Oh, cast whoever," but they were just really biased within the casting room. Yeah, or like I don't know, it's. Like, we haven't seen any of the sides that they were given the actors, so I don't know if it was a case of, like, 
technically being open to all races, but suspiciously everybody who got cast was white. Yeah. Not, obviously not everybody that got cast was white, but in the sense of, like, majority. I'm, I'm trying to remember this YouTuber's name, um, mm-hmm. but I remember she had a video about mm-hmm. colorblind casting and right. how that that can lead to that, basically. Right. Is you lead to that sort of situation where like, oh, well, we, we don't see color, but suspiciously everyone we cast it is white. Right. Um, so, yeah, the 2000s, I, I don't know what to say of why the 2000s was a more conservative time period, because a lot went out in the 2000s I could edge it that way. You know, Bush being in office in America and this being an American show, 9-11, uh, but there's so many factors I can't nail it other than that was, that really was a more conservative time period in America. And so we were seeing like that swing away from, again, you know, y- there was an attempt to just no attempt at all. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, we, we don't need more than one women ranger. Uh, we don't have any black people in this season. That's okay. And it's like. Not really showing what America is, you know, which is, yeah. it's a very, you know, it's a very big, you know, regardless of America's pro- America's problems, what it is right now is a big melting pot of a lot of people and just right. having it all white. It's like, okay, you're basically the suburbs. Yeah. And like, yeah, I get that they were casting a lot of New Zealand actors around this time, but New Zealand is also a very diverse place. Yeah. It's like... You know, where, you know, it's, I I just, I definitely want to blame the time period. Yeah. Because now we're swinging back to wanting more diversity, but I I feel like a lot of times it it really does depend on the showrunner. I'm not going to give everyone cookies at this point, but it's feeling like we're being a little bit more uh, in depth with how to do diversity. As opposed yeah. to the shallow diversity in the 90s where I really don't think I've the one show on the top of my head that I think did a did did a good job with with any of this was Hey Arnold. Yeah, like Hey Arnold definitely felt like it was a lived in neighborhood with a lot of different like Yeah. Not to sound like Barbara and that one lost like Master Writer <laughs> promo. Just lots of different types of families. <laughs> it it definitely felt like, you know, uh uh, uh, like a small neighborhood in New, like air, like small na- neighborhood near area in New York. I think, yeah, definitely had yeah. that that vibe of like a lot of people live there, he and they have lived in experience based on who they are, right. as opposed to just like we have a girl, <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. God, I hadn't thought about the 2000s. Like, why was the 2000s so masculine? And I'm like, it was very conservative at the time. Yeah. Like, uh... 9-11 ruins everything. Yeah. And it's also a weird time because it was like we were we were starting to push more and more to showing queer people. Right. That was, that was another thing. Uh, which we will, I guess, get into next season. Or next, next decade about the... Yeah. Because uh, we haven't hit also diversity in... Uh, you know, gender's still very rigid, two genders, um, the two android genders, <laughs> as we one time put it, but, uh, you know, and they're still rigid as in, like, it's very heterosexual a lot of times, 
mm-hmm. and we don't really see it alleviate until uh, really uh, Dino Fury. Yeah, because Dino like not again. I haven't we haven't really watched Dino Fury yet, but like everything I've seen about like Simon Bennett, like he like he seems to understand that like yes, we have to like approach this with like a somewhat realistic, like, point of view about how, like, the world actually is. Yeah. So. Definitely a beautiful kind of fresh, fresh air sort of speak. Yeah. So, I feel like we've talked enough about that, and uh, we have to, I want to give, uh, kind of another thing that came up was, like, the action sequences got really good and more complex. Yeah, I think it helped that, like, well, held is that when they moved the production to New Zealand, they had fired everybody except the stunt team. Yeah. So, but you, so you had the stunt team that was pretty consistent from carrying over from that first Saban era. So, I guess they felt a little bit more, um, and emboldened to do more. I guess. Yeah. Um. Also, uh, I'm gonna say the Matrix probably helped out too. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Which, hilariously enough, there is a Matrix actor in um, Jungle Fury, so. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, the Matrix has changed so much of how we shoot action, and I think that rippled in the Power Rangers. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, especially in the 2000s, everybody was trying to shoot their action like the Matrix. Um, but, like, with varying degrees of understanding about how the Wachowski shot that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, Because, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, bullet time's a thing. It's like, okay, but do you, do, are you seeing why they did bullet time specifically in this scene? Because, you know, they're in a fucking computer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, bullet time works because they are in, like, they are in a computer. Like, it's a specific thing that they can do. And it's like, no, we're just going to put it everywhere. Yeah, right. You know, like like in Hollywood, it's like, this got, uh, you know, this got famous, so we're going to just stamp out a bunch of them. Like how, I hate to say it, I, I, I'm not trying to start a fight here, but like how Warner Brothers really started to push DC movies because Marvel was making money, like Marvel and Disney were making money. Oh, yeah, like... It even pops up in Disney War was it get, I got to the point where they're talking about the um who wants to be a millionaire and how much of a hit that was on ABC mm-hmm. and like specifically when it, like that show was running in the UK not not the US version but like the UK version that started it like they did it as kind of like event programming where it ran for like a certain period of time like 2 days a week for you know 6 weeks or so yeah and, you know, so you had that certain period of time, it would run, it would be a huge deal, go, you know, go away and come back maybe, like, six months later or so. And they wanted to keep that format, like, the executives in charge of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire wanted to keep that format when it became a hit on ABC. And Bob Iger went, no, we've decided we're going to run the show three times a week. Oh, my God. And that kind of led to the downfall of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and also the fact that, like, that's when Survivor popped up, and more people were watching that. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, this show's running three times a week, but Survivor, you know, that runs once a week, and, you know, it, it's running on a regular schedule period. Also, also, like, there's a big, like, you know, there's a winner at the end of it. 
there's a whole season out of it. So it's like a once in a lifetime thing you feel instead of like, I could just catch this whenever like Jeopardy. Right. Yeah. And that's just something that comes up. I notice it's like lightning in the bottle will happen and then people will try to copy it. I won't say my hottest take on this, but I have a feeling <laughs> Ashley uh, might be on the same wing like about a certain spider. We're having psychic communication right yeah, now. Yeah, like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess the final thing I wanted to talk about is I guess we can talk about the explosions. This is like the mm. one thing people harp on the most about this. And I'm like, there's so much going on. You can tell is just way different from the Saban era. And like, also like there's, there's other things that are way more interesting, but no, let's harp on the fact they really loved using explosions. And yeah, I, I didn't even realize that was an issue until you mentioned it. Yeah. It's like, it's like you you barely notice it, and then everyone's like, "Oh man, I just had so many explosions." Well, I'm like, who cares? Like, and varying who you ask is who liked the explosions, whether it was uh, Kuichi Sakamoto or Bruce Kalish. But either way, I'm like, I don't. Who gives a shit? Yeah, right. I certainly don't. <laughs> It's like, it's like, we could talk about more about how the action sequences became more complex and everything, but no, go on about the explosions, and that's why you hate the Disney era. Right. All right, well, kind of, we got over all of that, so kind of let's get into our our, our own personal rankings of the Disney era. Um, so for this first spot, this these two are kind of interchangeable between Sid and myself, yeah. Um. And we'll kind of uh, to the fact that like we both have our own personal ranking of number one and number two. And, and, and uh, I also think it depends on my mood personally of which one I'm feeling more. Yeah. Exactly. They, 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 they both are just so close together of my favorite. That mine as well. Yeah. So yeah, I think splitting it into like both of us talking about it is great. So drum roll, I guess. Our our number one and number two that are just interchangeable on our list are RPM and Jungle Fury. To the surprise, I think, of no one who's listened to our RPM and Jungle Fury episodes. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, we're just going to talk about... uh, We're just going to split who talks about them. But, yeah, we both absolutely love these two series. Yeah. uh, Um, And we will recognize, for the both of us... RPM is the better written series, but it is very close. It is, it's just, yeah, it's so close with just the emotional investment of everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm going to go over RPM. Um, uh, and yeah, a lot of people cite this as one of the best, and I think it's a reason. <laughs> There's a reason for it. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's well put together, and it's just so engaging. Like you're you're really feeling the tension and everything going on in the story as you continue to watch it, uh, and and also I think it's like it, it plays with Power Rangers being more mature, but it's still very Power Rangers. It doesn't. I I think retrospectively looking back at the 2017 movie, I feel like it could get a little bit too into the mature area that all of a sudden it would just destroy Power Rangers, like calling the guys putties, uh, you know. But this one, it's like, no, they made, even the more ridiculous things of Power Rangers made, it didn't feel jarring. Right. 
you know, a Dr. K having, you know, Zords with big and googly anime eyes makes sense when you find out her backstory. Right. Uh, you know, there's some negatives of people, you know, that I do agree with. Uh, Summer's story, for instance, all of a sudden coming from, like, a really good place of, like, she she's learning to be a better person away from what she was raised as. And, you know, it's like, there's, you, you will, you can always change who you are to latching onto Dylan. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's like, there's some issues, yeah, but... You know, they're not glaring or destroy the whole season as a feeling. Uh, we're we're going to get to Sky. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this is, listen to our RPM episode. We really love it. It's a great season, great characters. I personally love Terminator, so watching something that was like Terminator is great for me. Mick G, eat your heart out. Terminator Salvation sucks. Uh, that's an evergreen statement on our podcast. Yes. Um. Now, so going to Jungle Fury. While RPM is definitely the better season of the two, Jungle Fury is just my personal favorite. Though, like I said, it's very close. Oh, yeah. Um. It just feels like a coalescence of several good parts of the seasons that came before it that has a fun cast, a good mix of Monster of the Week and serialization, and having an intriguing villain storyline with Dai Shi. And even for its drawbacks with diversity, it's such a fun and positive season and that everybody gets character growth. Even if it's, like, not the biggest, like, you know, character growth of, you know, Summer going from rich girl to, you know, pe- someone that goes and helps people. Like, they still have this character growth that you can measure from, you know, point A to point B. And, yeah, I, I, I don't even just... I just... I just really love the season. Like, it's just got such a fun concept. Like, the villain storyline's great. Like, the characters are great. Like, it's just, it's just great. Yeah, it's, uh, I wanted to point out, I feel very vindicated that people are looking at this season again and being like, oh, no, this was actually really good. Because it's like, I want to say about, like, even about four years after the season came out, people were just mean about it like oh this was one of the worst of the the power of the disney years and look at the dumb explosions and it was all about casey and all that and it's like i feel like you watch this show uh, like in some intense anger or something because you you kind of didn't see it for what it was it was just it was you know Especially for a writer strike season, like this yeah. was a really good, solid thing of television. Like, if I wanted to show someone, you know, something that was a little bit more lighthearted than RPM, like right. I would show them Jungle Fury. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, RJ's hot. Yeah, that's also <laughs> true. I I swear, me thinking RJ is hot was not like the majority decision of like me liking Jungle Fury. Like I actually legitimately like Jungle Fury. Yeah, not but my, RJ is also hot. Yeah, not mine either. It was it was also nice to go back and explore that with you. And like, no, Casey Casey has the largest character growth, but I wouldn't say the entire story is like focused around him in a very negative way. Right. And like you had, you know, it was like like you said, it was the the you know the escalation. The villains were very good, you know, all all good stuff. And I'm glad that people are revisiting it. And I and I was like, actually, this is really good. So yes, um, number three is where we depart 
uh, for a bit. I'm gonna point out this this year has been a this decade has been like a very hard one for me to decipher because I love a lot of these seasons except for one of them. Um, but number three, very weird for me because I used to rank this one just so low in general on my like even in my top seasons of Power Rangers in general. Uh, is Dino Thunder, so I guess I'm that basic bitch now. <laughs> I, I say that very lovingly. If you love Dino Thunder, yeah, I understand. Uh, one of the things that really got me is it's one of the best versions of Tommy I have ever seen in this franchise. Like, Agreed. Yeah, since kind of like when you first met Tommy, because I, I love, I, I think like looking back, you were like, ah, Tommy's kind of fun. I, I don't get the big deal about him, but he's kind of a fun character when we were watching him a bit in Mighty Morphin, and then it just kind of, like, Tommy became this, like, big entity over the years, and it's just Dino Thunder just was kind of like, what if we made Tommy a, like, div- like with big divorce dad energy, and, like, maybe a little angsty gay shit going on with him, and, and it's just like, and, you know, he's he's full of PTSD from his time as a ranger. And I'm like, yes, I actually like this. He's a he's a very flawed man. And, yeah. And also, like, God, I'm too old for this shit. And, and then it's like, the comics, I feel, kind of, and, and also, like, we'll get to this in Ninja Steel, kind of reverted Tommy a, bam, a badass, and I feel like that was JDF's influence. And I'm like, go away, William Shatner of Power Rangers. <laughs> uh i also feel like it got teenagers with attitude right this time because it's like when you first watched mnpr it's like oh teenagers with attitudes and yet they're the most upstanding citizens ever right oh like they're keeping angel Grove from falling apart so you get to this season and one they kind of met in a very breakfast club situation where they all got detention Right. And, and they all had to learn to get along, but it's like, you know, like, Ethan, like, accidentally got, like, thr- thrust in the cyber in, in this world that, you know, he was playing video games with, because he was really into this video game. Fuck everything else around me. Uh, <laughs> Connor's definitely, like, the conceited jock who's like, I'm the best there is. And, like... Kira's definitely going through a lot with, like, I'm trying to break out in the music world, and I'm trying to figure out, like, what's selling out enough, and one of my friends was a sellout. So, you know, you have kind of these these good kids, kind of with Connor. These good kids, but they're kind of a little bratty and teenager-like, because you're a teenager, so you're, you're going through a lot. Like, you are trying to find yourself as an individual, especially when you're, like, a senior in high school. So, right. really enjoyed that they were actually teenagers with attitudes. Uh, I, I just, I, again, I love the messy gay shit with Mezagog and Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> th- th- it, it throw, in, throw in Zeltrax or Smithy, and it's like, oh my god. This is, this is, this is, this is just the gayest mess. Uh, I, I was like, when, when are Antoine and Tommy just gonna have makeup sex, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> There's some narrative hiccups. Overall, I felt like Trent and uh, the White Ranger stuff was very good. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll get into that a bit later. But it still had like a lot of hiccups once he turned good because of how like they didn't have a lot of footage with Operate Killer being a good guy. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, and other things too. But yeah, I just, I just loved divorcee Tommy Oliver being a messy bitch. All right. Um, I agree with a lot of that. Uh, and we'll get into that in a bit. But my personal number three is Mystic Force. And what can I say? I love a good urban fantasy. And so here, uh, my opinion is that the overarching storyline in this series walked so RPM could run. But it was really well done for a kid's show. Like, I love, like, obviously I picked up on the mystery of, like, oh, Nick is actually, like, Udana's son, Bowen, like, pretty quickly. But, like, it's easy to imagine that if you're a kid following this along at home and you, like, you get to that reveal, you're just like, what? I knew it! Yeah. It's very exciting. And while they could have done more with the Rangers that are not named Nick in the series... Uh, the dynamics between the characters was just really fun and a lot uh, to a lot of great moments. And I will say that, like, this is probably has some of my favorite support cast of, like, characters in the series. Like, and in in, in not the series, the franchise overall with, like, so, I mean, you had Lily, you had Phineas, you had Toby at the Rockporium, you had Genji. And, but then you also had, like, Udana and Claire and, like... Uh, it even like you know his dad who showed up. I forgot his name. <laughs> is it? I, I always get. Is it Bo, Bowen or Liam Bow? Because I get Nick and him. Liam Bow. It's Liam Bow. Liam okay. Bow is the dad. Nick Bowen is, is Bowen. Is, isn't it? Nick is Bowen. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't I always like get to be called Bowen because he's been Nick his entire life. <laughs> he's like I'm Nick now. And it's like okay. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So like, it just had such this great like supporting cast as well as the rangers themselves and udana is probably one of my favorite mentor characters along with dr k and princess shayla yes i know shut up about shayla you're not gonna change my mind on that she's a great character is she a good mentor probably not (laughs) no but i love shayla she's so messy (laughs) (laughs) and also as we mentioned before with the uh, up at the top when we're talking about motifs the like the cloaks and like the the vest the leather vestments in the season were so badass and like the aesthetics of this season were just so great yeah like i loved root core i loved like the wands that they changed into the morphers like it was just so well it was just so well done yeah uh moving on to our number 4 uh my mm. number 4 is ninja storm I, I like this and Mystic Force pretty equally. I'm going to say these are on equal footing, but I had to rank them. And the nostalgia of Ninja Storm won out for me with ranking them. Like, I still have more of a heart for this season. Uh, it, it was the season that was like, I don't think if I got back into it in high school, I would not be here. If You know, I would have just continued to have written off Power Rangers you know, instead of like when, oh no, I'll, I'll watch this and I really like this. And then I ended up going to college. My roommate uh, in college was like, oh man, I remember Power Rangers? And we would talk about the old seasons and we ended up getting a bunch of them on a torrent. And here we are today, basically. So I just kept on loving Power Rangers. Right. Uh, but it was kind of like my first chance of really like looking at Power Rangers in a more, I wouldn't say adult lens, but definitely like an older lens at 15, 16. As opposed to, like, five. Right. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the, I love the story of it. It definitely was, like, 
learned a lot from the previous seasons of of telling a story um, and and everything. And, and the like the Rangers kind of felt a little bit more like this was also the beginning of like characters, I think, feeling more like people. Right. I think that was a motif we, we might have missed is characterization felt good, but uh uh yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that's just carried over from like the beginning of those like that that end of that Saban era. But yeah, yeah it was just like yeah, the characters throughout this era just did actually feel like for the most part, like there would be times where it felt a little bit short, obviously, but like they were people with interests and things that they like to do and conflicts and all of that. And not yeah. just, you know, pink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the pink ranger. Uh, I still love Camp's still one of my top favorite characters. Um, I feel like a lot of his story is like kind of the foundation of what you've seen a lot of going forward. Uh, Lothor is great. I don't give a fuck what you say about Lothor. I love hammy fucking villains. Okay, we love Diva Talks on this podcast, and we love Lothor. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's well, because it's like the first solid Disney, it still has its issues, and I think I'll let Ashley kind of take over that when Ashley gets to that on her list. So my number four is Dino Thunder. And um, this was actually my top season for most of the year, but then Mystic Force happened and I started questioning things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually agree with Sid on a lot of what they said, especially about this being the best Tommy and the teenagers with attitude done right. And I will also add, Mezagog is the scariest Power Rangers villain that they've ever had. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, God. Like... He is pure nightmare fuel. I remember seeing then, him at like seventeen. I'm like, oh my god, this is like Lord Zed. How I like how I viewed Lord Zed as a kid. Some kids are getting really scared about this guy. Yeah, like, and Trent's storyline was like the evil ranger gone good story done way better than an MMPR. Like yeah. straight up. Um, I do wish that the series had more to do with Kira and Haley and less to do with. Tommy's internal angst about being a Power Ranger and Mezagog and or even just Connor being a douchebag because Connor's such a douchebag. We fuck <laughs> fuck Connor. I'm glad Connor just kind of grew up. Yeah. You know, after, after the series, it sounds like he grew up, but I'm glad he did. Yeah. Like, yeah, Connor, you run your your um your soccer camps for underprivileged children. <laughs> Going into number five, which is Mystic Force, uh, flat out, I'm going to put out, uh, want to kind of expand on two things that you said, but I want to put out, I loved it more than when I first got into it. Like, if we were writing this, uh, writing this, like, a while ago, I probably wouldn't have put it in my top ten. Now, if you were to be like, rank the two decades of Power Rangers would be in my top ten. Uh, the Nostalgia one, uh, of Ninja Store won out on this, so I find it on equal footing. Uh, but, uh, I really want to talk about kind of the Nick-centric stuff, because it's, like, it's one of those people, I think, think because, like, the plot's focusing around Nick, he destroyed it. Uh, I feel like if you don't like Nick, yeah, you'll feel that way, uh, but I felt like, um, they could have done more, but Nick is not an unlikable douchebag of a character, and uh, basically becomes that way, and really accepts the others, that I'm just like, eh, I can let it slide, he's okay. Um, and I definitely really love what you pointed out about how, like, it feels like there's just an entire world of characters. Like, 
we just don't have Ernie at the juice bar or Mrs. Appleby randomly and um I forgot the principal's name, but it's it's one of those it's like there are actual like oh there's like a whole lot of people living in this world. There's you know Phineas and Lily and um and there's Toby like you know, and, and you have, like, Claire and Udonna and this rich tapestry and world. There's so much richness in Mystic Force that I'm like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> and also, I think to tie back to something Kip pointed out in our episode was how Mystic Force definitely did stray away a lot from the Sentai. And it shows a really good adaptation away from it. Right. Um, And yeah, I think just going, just touching on Nick for a second, like... I love the fact that he was just, he was kind of like a a loner sad boy who had to learn to like tr- open up and trust people. Yeah. But like he wasn't, a, he wasn't, a, he didn't really come across as a douche, just sort of just defensive. Yeah. And when he, when he would realize like, oh crap, I was an asshole, he felt genuinely sorry about it. He wasn't like, well, fuck you. Sorry, yeah. sorry I hurt your feelings, Snowflake Madison. You know, right. he's like, ah, oh, damn, I hurt her feelings. Fuck. <laughs> now yeah. she's stoned and it's my fault. Yeah, it's like, I was being a real douche. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moving on to my number five is Ninja Storm. And, okay, I think this season was really enjoyable and fun, but I felt bad that I don't love it the way Sid does. Um, I know that for, for him it's a big nostalgia thing, but I guess I don't have that, but... It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'll I, have I to say, it, yeah. I'll have to say it's like, it's a little lower on my list these days. It's just, you know, I do have that nostalgia love for it, but go into it and I agree with all of your flaws that you're about to point out. Yeah. So I would say in the middle, it kind of got a little bit bogged down once Hunter and Blake were introduced and they do kind of get the short end of the stick, especially when. You know, after we resolve the whole thing with their parents and then Cam's storyline kicks in, like, after that, they don't really get much to do. I feel like, because <laughs> Hurricane Drew is one of the few Sentais I've watched all, all the way through. I feel like that was just, a lot of it was just not knowing what to do with uh, the the Rigers in Hurricane Drew who come in in, like, episode 30 of a 50, like, 50 plus uh, episode series so they're like halfway through this and you're writing like 35 up 38 episodes so right you know what do we do um i will say though that cam's story lays a lot of the groundwork for a lot of interpersonal drama and backstory driven action that we carry through the rest of the disney era like I, I not saying that Cam was like the first of his kind with this regard. Like we saw a lot of it with Cole and um in Wild Force, but like I feel like Cam was kind of more of a refinement of Cole's thing that didn't have the complete emotional whiplash. <laughs> Cole, your parents are dead, killed by Bernie <laughs> Franzoni. That's like okay, we're making pancakes tomorrow morning at the Animarium. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, but yeah, I feel like Cam, like, what we see with Cam is, like, a refinement of what we saw with Cole and even Jen, and kind of taking it up to that next level, and that carries through until the, until the end of the Disney era, I would say. Um, and also, I just love the villains of this series for being so campy, okay? Like, they were, they were the campiest. I I love them. 
Yeah, I would say, like, if I had to pick my favorite villain out of this entire era, it is Lothor, Mara, and Capri. Like, like they're just so great. They are fantastic. And yeah. even with, like, the more, sh- like, I guess, like, sh- straight man of the group, Zergane. Yeah. Like, Zer- like Zergane served a purpose in that campiness, even though it was just literally him kind of grounding it. Right. Like, he wasn't just, he wasn't a wet blanket, it felt like. It just felt like, I am the odd man out of all these weird people. Right. It was, I think it just made it even better. Yeah. Oh. Like, it kind of reminded me a lot of, like, the Time Force villains in that regard. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, you had the very seriousness behind it, but they were also so campy. (laughs) It's, It's like a good mix of, like, Diva Tux and Time Force. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, I just, that, that reveal of, like, Lothor being Cam's uncle was just, oh, so good. That was great. Like, even <laughs> as a teenager, I didn't call that. Yeah, I was, like, I was completely, that one was, like, I was completely blindsided by, like, because I somehow, like, there's just, there have been times, like, I, you know, I've spoiled, accidentally spoiled twists for myself, like, the Dr. K reveal, or Tanaya Seven, or there's another one I'm not remembering right now, but, like, that one I somehow, like, did not spoil myself for, and I was just like, what? <laughs> I'm your uncle! You know, it's like, what well, really wasn't revealed like that, it was just like, huh, Dad never told me he had a twin brother. And yeah. You know, like, it wasn't teased all too well, I'll give it, uh, but I'll give it credit, it's like, when you f- see Lothor and um, Sensei Watanabe at the beginning of this, like uh-huh. they just definitely had that energy of we've known each other and we hate each other, right? And then it plays out with like, oh, by the way, right. that's 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 your that's your dad's twin brother. Like what? What? Uh, anyway, so we're going to converge on our last two here because we have feel very strongly <laughs> about it. Apparently, <laughs> uh. uh I find it funny. It's like it depends on uh, the 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 final two. It's like it depends on wh- where you're catching me and how much I'm hating this certain character. But definitively, number six is SPD. And if you were to tell me this ten years ago, I would call you a liar because <laughs> SPD was one of my fucking favorites. And um. Yeah, it, it apparently just does not really age well. Given given the fact that our world has opened up so much because of the internet, and, you know, I'm no longer a very sheltered kid from the suburbs, I know what the police are actually like. This, like, there was some uneasiness watching this season. I'm just like, oh, wow, this yeah. is not... Uh, I think Simon pointed out the reason, one of the reasons why they would never do Lupat is because of the fact that there are cops involved. And he's like, you cannot do that in this political environment. Yeah, it's just, it's not going to work anymore. It's not. And, uh, but even then, the thing that I feel like soured this season the most was Sky. Oh, like, my God. I mean, okay. So, starting off, yeah, sometimes the plot would be kind of a little messy and sometimes hard to follow. But, like, a lot of the characters would make up for it. Except for Sky. <laughs> and re-watching this, 
the entire thing about SPD, despite you go really in-depth in Doggy Kruger's background and everything, the entire thing of SPD can really boil down to Sky had to learn to be a better person so he could be the Red Ranger. And uh, uh, everything in this series, I feel like, plays out to that, including the Battleizer episode. This was one of the few times, I feel like, with, like, before that it was um, Last Galaxy with, with uh, Carone and um, Leo, of, like, Carone did all this stuff to redeem herself in this cave, and then Leo got the power. Uh, SPD was like, Oh, hey, the, their whole, the whole point of a Battleizer episode really is to revolve around your Red Ranger. Because your Red Ranger's the one with the Battleizer. This one decided to revolve it entirely around Sky and his motives of being an SPD and feeling really down. He can't have a Battleizer. And it's just like, cool, I guess. Yeah, and especially, like, it just feels like Jack is so often put to the wayside because Skye's got to have his emo-ness over the fact that he's the Blue Ranger, not the Red Ranger. Which, when you factor in, and we've we've talked about diversity in Power Rangers a little bit, when you factor in that uh, he has been the first, like, the first Black Red Ranger since TJ, and all of a sudden, it's like he's sidelined for this white boy who's an asshole. Like when, it, like he's shown to be contempt of his teammates when you first meet him. His reasoning of what he, why he wouldn't follow like Sid as a Red Ranger is she's a girl. Like, and this entire like, and so he's just Jack, a way more interesting character. Who is like, oh man, I, you know, I grew up unhoused in the streets as an orphan. I barely knew my parents. I'm trying to find where I fit in the life. I used to do Robin Hooding. Uh, I guess I'm serving my time as a cop, but I'm not sure if that's what I want to be. Right. And it's like, wow, that's a that's a really great thing to explore. And, and some of his central episodes were great. Like the one where, like, he basically, you know, can, like, confines with Sid that I never had a birthday and I never felt what was a big deal about them. It's like, wow, that's interesting. And then you have Skye who's just like, uh, just doesn't grow as a person. Yeah, and like, I think one of the biggest letdowns about Skye especially was like, because they book in the whole like, Doggy Kruger asking him at the end of the series, because at the beginning of the series he asks him like, if Sid would be like a Red Ranger, would you follow her in a battle? And he's like, no, because she's a girl. And, like, he asks him that question again of, like, if Sid were the Red Ranger, would you follow her into battle? And he says, yes, I would. And I guess that's to show his personal growth. And it's like, well, congratulations, you're the Red Ranger. And I'm like, okay? I, I, I believe that the line was, sir, I would follow anyone you would you would put in charge in the battle. Right. And I'm like, that is, that is such a politician line. Right. <laughs> But it's just, ah, uh, it's like you can point out great things of all these of all the characters: Jack, Sid, Z, uh, Bridge, Doggy Kruger. Like 
Cat, boom, like all of them had great things. And we would have episodes where we were really digging it. And it's just, it all falls back to why we ranked this so low is because of Sky. Yeah, because I will say, Cat is probably one of my favorite characters from this era. Bridge like, is still one of my favorite characters from this era. Yeah, but, <laughs> oh God, the series. Yeah, it's just the fact that it all comes back to Sky and just how needy he is and how entitled he is. Just It just sinks the series so low. And, and like, I feel like he doesn't really learn much. It just infers he's learned something. I'm like, no, he hasn't. All he's learned is his ex-boyfriend sucked. Yeah, like if he actually learned if he actually learned something, he would just quit the police force and be like, you know what? Like, I need to go work on myself because I clearly have some hang ups about leadership and what I believe it should be. Also, I'm just gonna point out of he definitely is he. We have I have a thing of like a cab, but especially him. Like, yeah. like, that one episode where he was trying to, like, where he got body swapped or something, uh-huh. and he was trying to tell the other rangers what to do. All he could think of was more, like, use of force of grabbing them and trying to talk to them. I'm like, you don't have any ingenious way of, like, saying who you are. And it, it came to the end of just, like, Rick preferring him. Right. It's like, you didn't think of that to begin with. No, you thought of just grabbing people and force instead of like, what if I wrote my name? I am Sky. (laughs) Yeah. Like, clearly you could have thought of something else. Yeah. But no. No. He definitely seems like he shoots first and asks questions later. Right. And he ends up becoming the leader of SPD. (sighs) (sighs) He failed upward. Yep. Uh, So... With SPD, we at least felt something. We, as you can tell, we we loved the characters, but Sky desperately just tanked it. And yeah. uh, unlike our, our our next one, which is Operation Overdrive's the bottom. Um, I would like to know sometimes SPD is my seven. If I'm just like if I think about Sky too much, right? Then then it's like no, it's it's the bottom. But yeah, Operation Overdrive, pretty boring. Yeah, it's just that there are so many, like, there'd be cases where there's a good idea, but then they just would never follow through on it. Definitely. Uh, you specifically said, like, it's a, it's a too many cooks situation. Yeah, they, they just decided to have, it's like, okay, you have this treasure finding thing where you have to beat the villains on this. But you ended up, like, have, like, like we mentioned, too many cooks with the villains. I think... Yeah, we we had the the cold miser and heat miser thing, mm-hmm. which was just like one of them was not was an American made villain. You could have written him out, and then you had like the the fear cats. You had that bounty hunter situation. So you had all these these villains, and like I just remember when we broke the episode out, and now our honorable mill inventions, which is the villains, because they just did nothing. Right. It's like. It was just like you had so much going on that it ended up so it made so little to go on and so little moved. Yeah, and so yeah, basically that. And like especially with like when I going back to like there was a lot of good ideas but not a lot of follow through on that. And I think Mac especially was a is a good example of that. Oh yeah. 
Because, like, having the big reveal that he's, like, a robot and giving him, like, kind of the angst of, like, well, everything I knew about myself is a lie. And, like, my father, who I, you know, have admired so much throughout my entire life, lied to me about who I was and my origin. And, like, that's compelling. But they, like, it's, it's so subtle the way they reveal it. Like... It's kind of like, they kind of will drop hints, they drop some hints, but like, it's one of those cases that you have to know it's coming to really catch on to the fact they're doing that. Yeah. And like, they kind of start dropping them really close to the reveal in the most part. Like, the whole part about like, oh, there's like, these pictures are photoshopped. Like, there's no shadow. Like, you could have maybe drawn that out a little bit. Yeah. And then, like... Like, the only thing you had at the very beginning was, like, I made the special modifications when they did the DNA scramble for the civilian powers. Yeah, which I feel like... They, yeah, they could have maybe started that sooner, or, like, maybe even, like, midway through the season just have dropped that. Yeah. And then have the rest of the series kind of having just max angst about... Am I know, a real boy? Am I a real boy? Um, and plus, oh god, just the cop-out at the end of just like, oh, well, we can, like, I can use my mystic powers to grant one wish, so I'm gonna make Mac a real boy! Yay! I was like, that was just, uh, I, I, I love cheesy bullshit, like, probably more than I should, but that was just so... That was a cop-out even for Power Rangers. Yeah, cause <laughs> I was like, what? I, I feel like it's more compelling to, like, maybe just, like, let Mac die <laughs> we can't have him die on power rangers right yeah it's just oh god I, I yeah and but yeah there's also just so much about like it just felt so lost in the weeds sometimes of like there's not really a central like theme to really like yeah you have the jet setting thing and they're looking for the jewels but like there's not really like a you know a central theme to carry itself on like you know Jungle Fury, you could say it's it's animals. So you you know you derive the Paishwa masters and animal spirits from that. You know RPM, it's cars. So okay, we're gonna have like you know these motorized vehicles that we're using to help save the world from a deadly computer virus. Or you know Ninja Storm, it's ninjas. <laughs> like, yeah, this like a- this one, I'm like, what is this series about? Like. <laughs> What what is even your theme here? Like vehicles? Like Yeah. I feel like you could do like an Indiana Jones like style Rangers, but this is not it. Yeah. Uh uh, it it really became apparent because it's like of just how flat and boring it was. It was just like when once a ranger came back, it was like Oh, look, our favorite characters from past Disney z- seasons and Xander that we like yeah. better than these guys. <laughs> yeah, especially because it's like, and Adam, and Adam was there, and Adam, Adam got to do things and have a character and like be like unbelieving that Tommy is smart. Yes. It's like, um, but yeah, just, and even that kind of sucked because it's like, Let's focus on how sad all the other rangers are. And I'm like, but the but the interesting people are over there. Like, can't we talk about the interesting people? No? Okay. Okay. At least Spencer rolled. Yeah, we love Spencer. Spencer is the best. Yes. 
Uh, it's like, when the revolution comes, I'm behind Spencer. Yes. Uh, so, last time we did an overview, we did a favorite character, and when we were trying to do it this time, we realized that characters were a big, like, characterization just boomed this decade. Yeah. So we're just like, ah, crap, we have to pick one. So we're just gonna pick one for every season. Yeah, or just two that we really liked. I two. did that a lot. <laughs> yeah, two that we really liked. Uh, Ninja Storm, uh, I'm gonna go with with the hero bit here. Because um, I also agree with Ashley's uh, choice is I'm gonna go with Cam and uh, my honorable mention is Dustin. I still re- like Cam when I first saw him. Oh my god, like Snark Master Cam, who's just mad at the world essentially, and you know, kind of grew to kind of really love these guys, but still be a- be a little bit of a grump. I still love that even more now that you know I'm like a little bit older and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, if I was feeling like. If I was a little older than the rest of everyone in my group, I'd also feel very like, oh my god, you guys. Uh, Dust, I-, I love what you said. It's like, Cam's supposed to be younger, but Jason Chan really like played him like a 33-year-old. Yeah, like, that's what I was going to say again, is that it's very obvious that, like, Jason Chan is, like, was 30-something when he was playing like, this character. Because, like, yeah, I feel this. Uh, my honorable mission definitely is uh, Dustin. Uh, I still love this dude, and I love him more now. I'm like, oh, look at this beautiful himbo who's just sweet and loves everybody. He's the best. And, like, I agree with Sid's, like, Sid's reasoning behind their choices. Like, it's perfect. I, yes, I agree with Cam. I love Cam. I love Dustin. But if I had to pick my favorite characters from this season, it's Mara and Capri. (laughs) Um, Like... They're just so campy, and they're just, like, the most aggressive bimbos. Like, yeah. They're they're basically Power Like, if the inspiration, formerly known yeah. as the Iconics, were Power Ranger villains. Yeah, like, because they're just... I, and it's hard for me to separate them, too, because they're, like, so attached to the hip. Yes. Like, they're just so funny, and, like, the, like the two actresses were clearly having a great time, and they were chewing that scenery hard. Yeah. It's... And just, like... I, yeah, and, like, their their fashion was great, and, like, I did love, like, you know, the times that they would get the breakout storylines, including, like, it was Capri that had the thing for Dustin, right? It was Mara. Oh, yeah, it was Mara. Okay, sorry. Um, see, they're so attached to the hip, I can't even remember, like, who got the solo <laughs> episode, but, yeah, like, like, Mara's episode where, like, she got, like, cast out, but, it like, it turned out it was a whole thing where, like, it was, they were just trying to, like scam like the rangers (laughs) yeah but like even then it's like i still love that where she was sad and then dustin was just like you know reached out to her was trying to be her friend and it was just like that would be a thing that carry over too is like it didn't happen with just dustin it happened in like a couple of other seasons after that yeah but like i still love that and i still love at the end of the season where like cam's trying to rescue them and like she's like Hey, so does Justin still talk about me? <laughs> uh, yeah, I just Mara and Capri supremacy for me. Yeah, I, I really, I think one of our stickers really has to be like them drawn, like the inspiration, and one, of, and they're yelling, "You gotta be joking me! You get our journalism for that!" <laughs> hey, Kayla! <laughs> hey, Lothar! <laughs> That's their energy, right? Uh, we're moving on the Dino Thunder. We pretty much agree, even though we, we love our we love divorced dad Tommy. Uh, yeah. K- Kira, yeah, Kira is 
the best character on this show. Like, uh, um, I think she's like she was so different than like a lot of the girl characters that kind of came before. In terms of, like, she's kind of alternative and, like, kind of got that Avril Lavigne vibe of, like, especially in that era of the 2000s. They even make a joke, like, I think, um, oh, what was her name? Cassie Cornell, like, makes mm-hmm. a joke about her being an Avril wannabe. Yeah, which just sets her off. Yeah. Yeah, Kira is just, I don't, I don't know what it is about Kira, but, like, she's just, like, I know if I, maybe I watched, like, this show when I was, like, 13 or whatever, like, I would have thought Kira was just the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Like, she's just so cool, and, like, obviously, like, she has, like, you know, obviously she's very caring of her friends, but she doesn't put up with anyone's bullshit. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like this was, like, finally they got a good, because it's, like, they were kind of experimenting, I think, a little bit with Tori. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, like, especially, like, oh, we're gonna have, like, only one girl character, so... We can't just be, like, girly girl and tomboy. Right. And, like, Tori was definitely more tomboy, but she would definitely was also, like, very mad when she was not seen as a girl. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, but you're a guy girl. Fuck you, you know? Right. Uh, Whereas, like, Kira definitely, like, embraced femininity, but definitely in the alternative way that it was back then, like... That's when I played around with femininity and I wore a lot of stuff like Kira back then. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that when I finally go through photos of in my mom and my dad's place, like, equally, uh, I'm going to find pictures of them. I'm just going to post them on the Rangers playing Twitter. Like, this is Sid as a teenager. Sid as a teenager dressed like Kira. Dressed like Kira. Um, you know, and she, she, you know, she definitely was like, what a lot of people were trying to do at the time, like, oh, I want to be a musician, and she took it very seriously, and she even had that weird Euro thing that happened. Yeah, and I like the fact that, like, there's so many times in Rangers where they'll do the whole, like, you know, follow your dreams, and, like, they'll come true thing, but, like, they don't really show the struggle of, like, trying to make your, like, your dreams come true. Like, they did that a little bit in, like, MMPR when we talked about, like, you know, Kimberly training for the the Pan Global Games because we can't say Olympics. The Olympics is trademarked. Yeah, so we can't <laughs> say so we're gonna say Pan Global Games. So you know how much she had to practice and split herself between being a ranger and you know her dream of you know being an athlete and like you know and Cat talking about like what happened with her, but like oftentimes like we it's so rare that we get to see like you know. Not rare, but, like, especially up until then, it's so rare that you got to see a ranger that had very specific goals and you see them struggling with, like, ta- to reach their goal. Yeah. And, like, it, it, even the fact that, like, she has those doubts about it. And, like, it comes up in the in the crossover episode with SBD, the first one, where, like, Kira is talking about her struggle with getting a record deal and getting her, like you know, her career off the ground and they, she goes into the future and Sydney's like, oh yeah, you become such a, you know, you're such a popular artist. Like you were one of my favorites growing up. Yeah. Uh, I I actually remember like Kira, like, I think she was talking to uh, Connor and Connor's like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, like, how's it going? It's like, did you know this cat jingle on the radio? And Connor's like, yeah, I wrote that, you know? Yeah. Like, it's just so rare that, like, in Power Rangers that we've seen a struggle like that of somebody, like, trying to make, you know, 
make their dreams happen for them outside of just, oh, I'm a ranger, so, like, everything else in my life has to take second priority. Yeah. Um, our, our second for Ashley, and I do agree with this, was, was Haley. Yeah, Haley is so great. Let's go, lesbians, let's go. Yeah. Um, because, right. like, I think it's, um, I wish that she'd kind of been a little bit more in the mentor role instead of just being a little bit more of the Alpha Five. Um, but, like, she didn't take anyone's crap. Like, she was shown to be very smart and knowledgeable and, like, obviously a great ally to Tommy over the years. And so, like, I, I wanted to know more about Haley. And, like, I wish that, like, they did tie it back to the whole, like, Carl Zichter thing from... <laughs> From VR Troopers. Like, yeah. you know? That she did have, like, an evil rich dad. And she's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Fuck you. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, Haley was pretty cool. Uh, I like to think of, like, her and Tommy's just, like, platonic life mates. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, this is my depressed gay best friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, she's brought him to so many lesbian bars just because, like, he's so sad. It's like... <laughs> it's like you're not gonna meet anybody here but i'm at least gonna get you drunk like yeah well get some life advice from my lesbian friends and uh, just in, in a certain uh i feel like in a, a certain time split because parangus is a multiverse there is a tommy that went through all the dinos under stuff and everything but you know he's just kind of crying about how cat went with a professional ballroom dancer and then like how like Antoine and him are still like trying to patch it up but it's like very like iffy all the time. Right. <laughs> like oh man why won't he love me again? Why did she run off with a professional ballroom dancer? Like <laughs> uh, and, spoiler alert, it actually was Kimberly. I don't know. Uh, yeah, let's just say it was Kimberly. Kimberly ended up becoming a professional ballroom dancer in France or whatever. Right. Anyway, uh, let's move on to SPD. Um, so, as I kind of mentioned before, when we talked about SPD, is my favorite character from the season is Dr. Catmix. Yeah. Like, I loved kind of, like... I, I did kind of love the extended, like, kind of science tech role that we saw in the season. It was very much like Lightspeed with that regard. Um, but I feel like she got a little bit more to do than, like, Miss Fairweather. Yeah. Miss um, Fairweather, unfortunately, fell to the um, the time period. Yeah. And where, you know, yeah. I can't wait, really wait. say much about that besides, like, Women. you know, oh, yeah, she's really smart, but, like, she's a girl, so therefore we gotta pair her off with this one dude who will not stop nagging her. <sighs> Joel does get better, but yeah, that yeah. was annoying. It was. Um, but, yeah, so I, I really did love that Kat kind of got to be, like, you know, kind of her own character. Like, she was very, she like, like, I think they toned down a little bit of her mean-spiritedness in the first couple of episodes. Oh, like, yeah, she was kind of mean-spirited. Um, but I love the fact that she was very, like, sa like, not sassy, but, like, she did have a little bit of an attitude, and she didn't really put up with people's shit, and, like, she was willing to stand her ground against Kruger when it was needed. yeah. So, like, I, I did love to see that kind of aspect of her. And, like, obviously she's very smart. And, like, I loved the episode where she got to be a ranger for an episode. Because that design is so great. Oh, yeah. 
and like um there's something else about her and i love the central episode where like she was considering if she was gonna leave like yeah it was just very well done i feel like she definitely has a parental energy to her yeah but it isn't like oh a mother i mean she has mommy vibes if you get my drift (laughs) Mommy, sorry. Mommy, sorry. <laughs> she has mommy vibes, but she, not, it's not motherly. It's not like, yeah. oh, I'm going to coddle my children or stuff you normally see with that type of role, especially since she was pretty much Kruger's second. Right. Um, you know, she she was just more of like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of a bunch of young, dumb 20-somethings. Yeah. Um. Mine, I get it. <laughs> yeah, mine is is Bridge. I I don't think I will ever not like Bridge. Bridge it's, is great. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's just Bridge is is quirky. I think it's like the first time since Billy they had a neurodivergent coded character, right? Um, and like it's not, and you know everyone's like, oh, Bridge is kind of strange, but it's not treated as like a weird like. It's weird. It weirds people out, but it's not treated as like, oh well, f- we're gonna shove him in a toilet, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I just I cannot help that like like love him so much for that. Like I remember when I watched it as a teenager, I just latched on the bridge because it's just like this is me as a character. This is me now. <laughs> <laughs> this is me now. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, just just bridge is fun. I love bridge. Very shallow right. thing to say. <laughs> uh, Mystic Force were pretty much on um, level, so I'm going to go with my, like, slightly honorable mention, because it just mm-hmm. more has to do with, like, god damn it, I do like Trash Boys. I did like Xander. Yeah, I think Xander kind of warmed up, like, warmed up to me, like, the more the season went on, but he was still just like, oh my god, just, just stop, stop. Stop. <laughs> so I definitely swipe white, right on Twinder, Tinder or wolf him on Scruff. <laughs> but like no one night stand, baby. That's a you're you're you would yeah, be too much to handle afterwards. He's kind of annoying. Like if I if I knew him in real life, I'd be like, I do not want to hang out with you. But I I did like that he was the trash boy that actually did get like character growth. Right. <laughs> like the previous trash boys with Connor and Sky. Uh huh. <laughs> so he got he got he got to he grew he grew out and also like. His trash boy antics would get him in trouble. Yeah. Like, constantly. Even in the, like, crossover episode. Like, I still get him in trouble. Like, yeah. hi, I'm Xander. It's like, you, you don't, you, you, you don't have enough in charisma. I'm sorry. But, uh, <laughs> we pretty much, yeah, Udana and Claire are great. I'm gonna let yeah, you know that. Yeah, I think, because I, I listed Udana and Claire as my two favorites kind of together. Because they are kind of, like, attached in a way. But, like... Udana is like she's like a tragic figure that we don't see a whole lot of in Power Rangers. Yeah. Because like obviously she's been alone for a while and she's lost so much in her life. Um but like she still holds out hope that like the world can still be a better place. Yeah. And uh, like god, I just and, like, obviously, she's she is one that is kind of motherly, but, like, in the sense of, like, I don't know, like, obviously, she's not doting on the rangers, but, like, she's she, also she, there to kind of be a strong parental figure. Yeah, she doesn't be, like, she she doesn't have that parental figure, like, oh, that sucks, do you want to go for ice cream, champ? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and I do agree with you. It's like you can, like, when I first listed Udana, I didn't list Claire. And, like, the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, I got to list Claire with this. Because Claire is kind of her, like, I wouldn't say foil, but definitely, like, they're perfect together. Yeah, because, like, I think Claire is such a great example. Like, her interactions with Claire are such a great example of the kind of person Udana is. Yeah. Because, like... Claire is, like, especially when the season starts, she's very down on herself because, like, she's not very good at magic. Yeah. And, like, she talks about how Udana was the only person who really believed in her. And, like, you later find out Udana is her aunt and, like, everything about, like, that happened with her mother. I feel like Udana might have, like, partially raised Claire. Yeah, that's what it seems like. And Claire was just not aware for a really long time of, like, the backstory there. But, like... Clearly, like, Udana is, I think Udana's patience with her is not out of, well, she's my, she's my niece and I have, the, I'm obligated to her. It's like, no, obviously, yes, this, Claire is, like, the last connection she has with her past because she's lost her sister, she's lost Liambo, she's lost Bowen, and, like, she's lost all of her friends who were the former rangers, like, before, you know, our current set, like, she's lost so much, and, like, I think, you know, she has that connection with Claire, but she knows that there is greatness within Claire, that she can't just, it just, she just needs the time and the patience and somebody who, like, actually sees her for who she is. Yeah, Udana's a good teacher. Yeah, Udana is, in terms of, like, teachers, yeah, she's great at that. Like, I ever yeah. Uh, not to do with Claire, but I, I definitely remember uh, when everyone was overusing magic and she kind of made a point, but she didn't like just take away their magic powers or whatnot. She was just more of like, you guys are going to have to learn eventually to not use magic for everything. Right. And it was something that oh, when they looked, when that happened to them, they looked back on it and were like, Udana was right. We shouldn't have done that. Which right. is... <laughs> It's one of those things that's like, you can't just tell someone when you teach them, you they sometimes have to learn the lesson, even if it's right. harsh. But go back, um, go back with Claire. I'm sorry. Yeah, Claire, I think I just, I love Claire because, yeah, she is kind of the comic relief character of like, for especially like for the first half of the season and like a little bit in the second half too. She's like, she's the comic relief character. She seems very bumbling and like anxious and unsure of herself but like it like that comic relief is rooted in like her own insecurities and like you see how much she kind of struggles with that but like after the whole like incident with the gatekeeper like when she gets she gains her mother's power for an episode like you see her start to gain more and more confidence as the series goes on to the point where at the end of the series she is the one in charge of root core like yeah. she's there to be its protector as like Udana goes out to like, you know, meet, you know, spend more time with her her family. <laughs> yeah. Um, um. But yeah, I I love I love Claire because I feel like she's like so much more than just like you know just being the goofy like comic relief character that's there to like mm-hmm. lighten the mood. Yeah, I mean Phineas went through the same arc. It's just Claire's a lot 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 cooler in our opinion. Yeah, I mean Phineas, I. Phineas is just weird to me. <laughs> he's sorry. A, he's a very weird chap. Yes. He was he's definitely podcaster boyfriend to Lily's uh e-girlfriend. E-girl yes. girlfriend. Uh, uh so uh next up is Operation Overdrive, Spencer. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's it's objectively Spencer. It's objectively Spencer. 
Gaga is just like. You know, I I love how he kept making jokes as just how much he just seemed to hate Andrew. Yeah, because it's like he just barely seems to tolerate his job. It's like, I feel like he just sticked with Andrew because he loved Mac. He just, and I feel like he probably put together Mac more than Andrew. Yeah, plus, like, I imagine that Andrew is probably not around a whole lot. Like, this probably the time period we see him in is probably the most Andrew's been around the house since Mac was created. And even then, it was, like, kind of sparse before then. Yeah, so we just would kept making jokes because of how many times, like, Spencer would have a weird barb towards Andrew. Be like, oh, man, when the revolution happens... And, you know, they're they're about to round up uh, Andrew Hartford as, like, the rich bourgeoisie. Like, Spencer's gonna be uh, off tonight and just would leave the front door open. <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, man, you, you are, you literally dream about guillotining your boss. <laughs> Which, who, who cannot do, who, who, who hasn't? Um, right. But there was also the fact that, like, you know, he was a master of disguise. Like he was, he was a fun character. You know, on, on top of all that, and I feel like Max' whole thing would have been way more boring if it wasn't for Spencer there, there to basically be Max' father figure. Yeah, he he definitely does a better job at it than Andrew does. Of course, <laughs> I think like Max continues to call Spencer Spencer. But after he finds out, he's just like, okay, Mr. Hartford. It's just like. <laughs> like, that is like the sickest burn I think anything at Power Rangers has ever been. <laughs> calling your calling your dad creator, Mr. Hartford. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, he's still chill with Spencer. So it's like, Spencer's great. Yeah. Uh, we also connected, we, last couple of you have connected with Jungle Fury. We're not just saying this because he's hot. But it's RJ. It's it, fucking RJ. It's like, like how, are you surprised? Uh, how could you not love Stoner Wolf Boy? Who, yeah. <laughs> who quite possibly, I think he might be like, you know, a tech bro that came from a lot of influence. Because it's like, you seem to be able to have this loft and everything while running a a, a, a restaurant, which is, can be very difficult with money. Right. It, it, it's just like, uh, you know, it's just like, this guy definitely gets high 24-7 and he, he eats, eats pizzas and creates them and just, ah. Yeah, I think in terms of mentor characters, like, obviously I just cited Udana as one of my favorite characters in this, like, entire franchise, as well as Dr. K. Um, and we'll talk about her in a bit. You can probably guess what we're going to say next. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, um... I think for RJ, such a breath of fresh air in terms of, like, mentor characters on the show. Because oftentimes, you know, the mentor characters have been shown to be, like, you know, older and, like, obviously, you know, had a bit more time, a bit more wisdom. And, you know, they're kind of there to be slightly parental. But here you kind of just have this, you know, this guy who's probably at most, like... 10, like 10 years older than the rest of the Rangers. Yeah, I would I would peg him at the oldest be 34, 35. Yeah, and like with the other Rangers being like, you know, I would Nin- say like 18 to 20. yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, so he's like there to kind of be like the older brother slash friend. And like, it's just... <laughs> it's- I, 
I, I, you mentioned earlier with, uh, with the, with the energy Jason Chan brought to uh, Cam. I feel like David uh, De La, La Tour brought a very similar energy, but it helped because of how mentors, like you mentioned, were a lot older. It helped right. make RJ feel like a much more younger mentor. And yeah. And like, you know, it's kind of one of those things. It's like when you're in your 30s, it's like, yeah, you you kind of know what you're doing, but you also don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And like, it sometimes does feel like RJ is kind of figuring out as he goes along, like, Obviously, like, you know, he has his unconventional, like, training methods for Casey. And, like, he also has kind of, like, his own issues with his dad that he has to work through. And, oh, God, there was that other, there's something else about his character that I was just like, oh, this really stands out. Because it's like, oh, obviously, like, the stuff with the wolf spirit. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, you know, I'm not saying that mentors don't go through their own shit in, like, Power Rangers. Po- poor Doggy Kruger and Adana. Yeah, Doggy Kruger, Udana, Dr. K, like. Yeah, oh, Dr. K. Oh, uh, Dr. K. But, yeah, like, it was just kind of interesting to especially kind of see that, like, you know, especially, like, that's probably another motif of the season is that you have ranger mentors. Yeah. It's like. Yeah, they are mentors, but they also have their own ranger powers that they can use either regularly, semi-regularly, once in a while. I mean, we know Udana, she just loses the powers very early on in the season. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I think, it, I think it just makes RJ such an interesting character compared to, like, a lot of others because he is kind of that... He is the mentor, but he's, like, doesn't... He doesn't know everything. Yeah. And I think you'd be the first to admit he doesn't know everything. I think this kind of discussion can kind of tie into our favorite character of RPM. And I'm going to say this. RPM had a lot of great fucking characters. Yes. Uh, But Dr. K won out. And I think I'm going to continue this. I feel like Dr. K brought kind of a similar youthful energy, but in a different way of like, uh, she definitely comes off like she's 18 years old. Yeah, like... Dr. K definitely does still feel like she is a child figuring things out, even with her, her, her big, even with her big brain. Yeah. Even though she's, you know, very smart, she's invented all this. She even accidentally destroyed the world because she just wanted to go outside. She's still coming off like she's trying to figure out the world around her and how it works still. And she she even comes off a little bratty at times, which I really like because- I'm not trying to say teenagers are bratty, but God, like, I just remember back when I was a teenager and I think a lot of people there was like, God, you were just, you were just a shit sometimes. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that happens a lot with like, there's so many ways that Dr. K could have just gone into the child genius character where like, you know, that she could have just been totally aloof and not very like sympathetic to other people around her because she's just so smart. Nobody else around her is. And I think, you know, Initially, for the first, like, half of the season, it seems like that's just who who she's going to be totally 100%. But then you learn more of her backstory, and then you see kind of who the person that she is when Gem and Gemma are around, and the person that she tries to be. And, like, she kind of starts letting her her guards down a little bit. Yeah. it's, It's one of those, it's like, she's... She moves beyond her backstory, and 
when you really think about it, her pa- it's like you accidentally colla- like made the world collapse because she wanted to go outside. Yeah. A very a, a very like childlike thing to do actually cuz you know she was being restrained. Yeah, and like it's that one of those things of just like you could be like, "Oh my god, how are you so stupid to do this?" but like you understand so deeply about like, yeah, that was not a smart move, but like can you really blame her especially for the way that she was kind of just imprisoned and like forced to like you know work for some very evil people and i want to say gaslit too yeah because the whole thing about like she's told her entire her childhood oh you can't go outside you're a very sick little girl and if you go outside you're going to be even more sick so we're just going to stay inside and you're going to work on this algorithm to like create super soldiers or whatever they yeah this military think tank that raised her dead yeah like you know she's been lied to gaslit her entire life um and she you know obviously i mean she had the contingency of just you know using vengeance vengex to just you know shut down the system inside of you know, alphabet soup, but they didn't let her carry out the full plan, and surprise, the world ends. Yeah. And, like, through, like you said, it's like the beginning, it just kind of slowly unravels that the reason why she is so cold and standoffish is not because she's a child genius. Uh Uh, It was because she went through so much and she doesn't want to get close to people again. Yeah. And, like, yeah, it's just, it's so much and like it they it's one of those things about like if they'd gone any other direction with it it could have just gone into like you know those stereotypes of like the cold genius or turned her into a billy not not saying i don't love billy but like you know billy had the whole like techno babble thing going on for him that just sort of made him a little inaccessible sometimes yeah um and they just struck such a great balance with Dr. K that I think that she's kind of one of the best characters they've ever made for Power Rangers. Yeah. Also, her central episode was probably one of the saddest things I've ever watched in Power Rangers. Right? I was like, am I actually crying at Power Rangers right now? Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh- we're going to be very quick because we've went over our least favorite character, which is uh, just just fuck Sky Tate. Yeah, just fuck him. Like, he's the worst. Like, I'm just like, it's one of those things about, like, SPD as a season, like, without Sky, it probably still would have ranked a little bit lower. But, like, the characters are so great. And, like, there's actually some pretty fun plots in there. But, like... Man, does Sky bring the whole season down? Yeah, I wrote, he bitch ruined an entire season. Like, that's how bad of a character he is. I think uh, the notation is he's worse than Rocky. Rocky didn't destroy Zeo by being Rocky. Yeah, because, I mean, Rocky's just dumb. Like, Rocky (laughs) didn't, like, the entire season of Zeo does not revolve around Rocky being so, like, mad that he wasn't made the Red Ranger. Like, he wasn't made, well, he mean he was the Red Ranger, but, like, Oh, like, they didn't make the whole plot line about him thinking Tommy was going to take over leadership of the team into an entire season. <laughs> I thought it was Jason, which was even funnier. 
Oh, right. It was Jason. It's like, Jason's going to take over and everything. It's like, dude, what the fuck? All right. And he wasn't even Red Ranger in that season. It was Tom. What? Oh, God. It's all blurring in my head. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Fuck Sky. So, we're going to move on to uh, another thing we like to do this time uh, Mm -hmm. is we're doing our favorite suits, least favorite suits. Hands down, our favorite suit has been Mystic Force. Yeah. Mystic Force is just so eye-catching and like i'll say like in terms of aesthetic i would say mystic force has the best aesthetic overall yeah of the entire like disney era oh, but like so good. but the suits especially it's like it's got one of the, it's one of those cases where like every ranger has like a very specific detail but it doesn't get o- too over the top yeah like especially like, i love the way the pink ranger looks of like Kind of that butterfly effect that I'm sure it's impossible to see out of that visor, but <laughs> but yeah, it's just oh, it's so good. And the capes, I know that like you know the the main thing of Edna Mode is no capes, but yeah. the capes just add just this extra level of like. And I don't want ugh, it's so stereotypical to say pizzazz, but pizzazz, yes. Ah, oh, they're so good looking. Yes. Our our least favorite suit. We're gonna punch down on Operation. <laughs> And because it just nothing stands out with them, and it's like you look, and then when you remember them, they're kind of ugly. <laughs> yeah, that whole like blocky white with the the Operation Overdrive logo. It's just like I, it's just it doesn't doesn't work. It just doesn't work. No, uh, and it's like compared to the other like other things you've seen in the past, including I think like Lost Galaxy, which I think got ranked pretty low last time. You just kind of, yeah, we just were kind of like, what ranger are you supposed to be when you look at these uniforms? Yeah, because, like, at least with, like, Mystic, you see Mystic Force, and you're like, oh, those are clearly, like, you know, they they, they have some magic powers going on. Or, like, RPM, again, cars, um, Jungle Fury, animals. um, SPD, you kind of get a little lost that they're supposed to be cops until you see, like, the the lights in the helmet. But, But, like... you mentioned they had kind of the number in their uniform. Yeah, so, like, clearly they are some sort of organization. And, like, you know, Ninja Storm is ninjas. And Dino, like, Dino Thunder is my close second in terms of suits, by the way. And, oh, like, you know, they have such that, you know, that, like, the, the spike details and all of that. Like, it's so good. And, like, you look at Operation Overdrive and you're just like, okay, okay what's your deal? <laughs> yeah, like, are, are you vehicles? What's going on here? Yeah, um, yeah, I, it's like, I, I feel bad for how much we punch down on Operation Overdrive, but also, it's just not good. It's so much about it, it's just not good. Yeah. So we're under our mentor <laughs> characters. Yeah, so I'll say that this decade has been really great for mentor characters, and there are a lot of good mentors. But when we really, really thought about it in terms of, like, who we say is the best mentor in terms of, like, what a mentor is supposed to be to the Power Rangers... Y'all are going to be surprised because this is how much we've talked about Udana and Dr. K and RJ and all of that. Our pick for best mentor is Doggy Kruger. We love Doggy Kruger as a mentor. Yeah, it's just like, because he's, you know, he's got all the things that kind of a mentor needs to be. It's like you have, he's an actual character. So like, you know, like his entire backstory of like Anubis being taken over, thinking that he's lost his wife. And, like, kind of, like, the tragedy of his character and, like, why he's so, like, stony. Um, He works as, like, a great leader to the Rangers. Like, he's not there to just be, like, 
I think they, they took a lot of the things they learned from Bill. Yeah, um, I was about to say, it's like, he reminds me of Bill. And so a lot like that, but I feel like they kind of just refined that a little bit more. Yeah. And, so- like, you know, there'll be times that he is a hard ass, but, like, you know, either he'll get called out for being too much of a hard ass. Yeah. And being, like, kind of over the top and, like, kind of he'll pull back and kind of learn his lesson from that. Or, like... Him being a hard ass actually does it ha- le- let the Rangers actually ultimately learn something from what he's trying to teach them. Yeah. I remember one of his best bits, I think, was with an early episode when they were establishing characters. This was par- this has kind of been part of the formula is first cro- crop of episodes established characters. And they were establishing Jack as the leader. And he found out through Boom that Rain- Rangers have all sorts of privileges because they're the leader of the squad. And, you know... He talks to to Jack, and Jack, you know, he was like, oh, it's like, where's your, you know, he's like, where's your squad, you know, kind of leaving kind of little breadcrumbs, so to speak, for, and not overly being like, Jack, you're being a terrible leader. Right. You know, but he's being like, shouldn't you be out with everybody? You know, you know, leadership does have its perks, you know, but kind of hitting is like, Jack, you really need to think this over. And even I really like that he talks to the, like, even, like, because he's seeing this, he goes, like, Rangers, do you have a vote of confidence in this guy? And they're like, no, we don't. Right. <laughs> so, you know, whereas, like, Bill, when, uh, Bill, Bill. <laughs> Captain, <laughs> Captain Mitchell was going over, like, this this rescue thing that the uh, Lightspeed Rescue Rangers did, uh, you know, and Carter just did that whole uh, scenario where he shot everything. He didn't exactly be like, he just was like, Carter, you failed. Like, he didn't be like, hey, Carter, like, next time check this, you had this issue. He just told him he failed and no reason why he did. Right. Instead of like, yeah. (laughs) Instead of like, Carter, if you hit this, it would have exploded. (laughs) Right. And like, something especially that I always remember about uh, Kruger is that, you know, after he gets his ranger powers, and like, you know, the rangers think that they can slack off, he does kind of do that whole petty thing of, like, not coming to aid them. <laughs> Which is, like, fair. Fair, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we just really love Doggy Kruger, and we also just wanted to throw SPD some sort of bone. Bone? Bone? <laughs> like, yeah. yes, we we love the, the, the Captain Holt of... <laughs> Power Rangers. Yes. Uh, now we're going back to back to the version of which I'm the least favorite mentor. Yeah, Andrew Hartford is the worst because he's just. What does he really do? He's just he's he's just basically the guy that fronted all this. He could have just not been there. Right. Yeah, he's just kind of useless and boring and like. It's like it's like I said with Shayla. Shayla, great character. Not sure she's a great mentor, but yeah. like, really, Shayla, she's interesting with a you know interesting and tragic backstory, and she's fun. And like, Andrew's just Andrew's there. <laughs> yeah, creepy. Also, yeah, it's yeah. creepy. He built his own son. Yeah, because like his explanation of why he built his own son was just like, oh yeah, I just I've been so busy, I didn't have time to date. I'm like, you could have paid for a surrogate. <laughs> also, like. Uh, you don't go through, like, 
uh, like menopause, you could have you, your sperm's fine. Yeah, you like, can you father could've... children into your seventies, dude. Yeah, you gotta put that shit on ice if you're so worried about it. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh. Yeah. Though we did want to have an honorable mention here in terms of like favorite mentors. It's like Dino Thunder's Dr. Tommy Oliver was good, actually. Yeah, we're like, this is the best what this is one of the best versions of Tommy we've seen. Uh he's a very good mentor, even though he is messy and sometimes he's like, I'm too old for this. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Uh him being a very decorated ranger before that and a team leader before that really helped him out. But he's also not like, I'm Tommy, the greatest Power Ranger ever. No, he's a messy bitch. Yeah, like, so much of Tommy in this series is just informed by the kind of trauma that comes with having to save the world so many times before you turn 18. Yeah, like... Yeah, he's just like, he's tired. Big, what was it? Big divorce dad energy we talked about. Oh, 100%. Just big divorce dad energy. You know, he's tired. He's definitely, he doesn't want to do this anymore, but he feels reluctant to, uh, feels reluctant to bring the kids into this because of what happened to him. It's like, oh, this is all great. So uh, my thing is JDF, just get the fuck away from this character. <laughs> Yeah, because it's just like clearly he has his idea of what Tommy should be, and it's just it's, it's, it's I don't it's, I don't I don't respect his vision. I don't respect his vision. It's like Tommy should be a badass. I'm like Tommy's a badass, yes, but he would probably also be a very flawed badass. Also, Cat deserves that an actual character instead of just being someone's wife. Right. Exactly. Um, so, now that we've kind of moved out of mentors, like, we wanted to mention some stuff that has come up, or that was missed in other episodes, and I'm going to start with my most fresh memory of things I missed. I forgot to mention my own personal headcanon that Dr. K has Heelys. Uh, it came from, like, I think the episode where she she fronts it against the mob or something. Yeah, because, like, the, in the episode where she goes and rescues uh, Ziggy after he, like, gets in with all of those mobs... Um, she kind of comes floating in <laughs> to the room instead of, like, walking up. And, like, she, you know, she takes them all out with that, I forget what that weapon was, but, like, she it, takes it, them all it, out. It, it destroys their clothes, except for their underwear. <laughs> right. And, like, it was, like, does she just have heel on Heelys or something? And then, like, uh, one of our listeners, Jordan, pointed out, like, yeah, well, if you look at the, you know, when she's talking, she's making that walking away motion, it's kind of got of a glide to it. And I was like, I saw it later. I'm like, yeah, it totally does. Like, she kind of, like, instead of doing, like, the, you know, step, step, step with her fingers, it's step, step, glide. <laughs> she just so, loves like, her Heelys. Yeah, so I just imagine Dr. K in the lab just, like, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, this was an observation from Kurt, and it's something that's, like, I don't remember much about Full Metal Alchemist, but, like, Fran was, like, Sheska. Yeah, I don't remember much about Sheska either, but, like, looking at Sheska online, it's like, yeah, she's very, that's very much a bookworm character. Yeah, it's very Fran energy. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of reoccurring actors that showed up more in this than I think any, like, the first decade. Yeah, I mean, especially when, like, you're filming, like, New Zealand is kind of, like, is a very small island in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Like, not the smallest island ever, but, like, in terms of, like, actors that live there, like, I feel like you're gonna start seeing the same people a lot. 
Yeah. And especially like, you know, especially on something like Power Rangers where like, you know, they're going to be, you know, shooting every season. Yeah. Like, yeah, go ahead and get the, like, the reoccurring paycheck from them, you know? Yeah, it's like, I feel like let's list them in the show notes, but there's like, like six or seven people that keep coming back. And they, like, two of them I know show up in the Neo Saban era, so... Yeah, and like the funny thing is that I've rec- I've come to recognize John Tui so much from the series that like not to give away anything about my day job, but my day job involves a lot of um programming for for television. And um I keep seeing his name pop up in episodes of The Young Ro- uh, uh, in Young Rock, which is like the the show about like Dwayne the Rock Johnson's childhood. And like I was like Every time I seem to forget, and then I see his name again. I'm like, oh, it, it, it's Doggy Kruger. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, it's Daggeron. Right? And like, he's playing one of the wild Samoans in that series, too. So it makes it extra weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just makes it weird. Um, the crossovers also went away. And I think a lot of it just had to do with like, you're dealing with moving actors from, like, America or New Zealand, or New Zealand would have been easier, but you're dealing with moving actors from either, like, America or Australia. So it was just, like, and it's probably, like you mentioned, Disney was kind of tightening the checkbook a little bit. So Yeah, so I think as the, especially as the series was going on, I think they were putting in less and less money. I um, do believe <laughs> the the interview's gone forever, but I do believe Johnny on Bosch in an interview mentioned uh how like it sounded like they were going for like one old like um old ranger from Mm -hmm. because they could only afford really to bring over like one american ranger yeah once a ranger that makes sense um so yeah like uh, so yeah so like those crossovers that we would see i think the like they stopped at um like at like you kind of got I, your last one in, like, you know, because you'd have the, the episodes where they would cross over with the previous season. Yeah. like And they, F- like, stopped after SPD. Yeah, like, Mystic Force had Piggy, but that's because, like, um, Brain Duncan was also in the series as Toby. Yeah, so, like, they had an episode where, like, they just sort of established that Piggy was just sort of hanging out in Briarwood. Like, and he's just, like, gonna hang out until, like, the aliens come and, like, start our first contact leading into SPD. So he's just there. Yeah. Um, and he like has that really weird conversation with Genji. And then like, obviously you have like the once a ranger thing in, um, operation, in operation overdrive. But like, also I think Andrew mentions by getting something from Toby and Briarwood. Yeah. In an episode. And then like, you know, as we mentioned with, um, I don't, know if there's like a crossover that kind of references back a previous season in uh jungle fury was there i'm trying to remember off the top of my head and i can't i I, yeah i can't really remember but and then like obviously an rpm with like the the franchising of jungle fury pizza jungle karma jungle karma that's it jungle karma pizza um yeah, it was just, like, it was kind of interesting the way they would try to keep it as, like, kind of a connected universe, but, like, at some point just stopped doing the crossovers altogether. Yeah. Uh, um, I will I, say, like, Once a Ranger, though, is probably one of the better, like, kind of crossover legacy episodes. Yeah. It works better than Forever Red. 
Yeah, Forever Eyes is stupid, and I love it for it, so. Yeah. So the last thing we wanted to mention is because this is, like, this, I found this out while I was in the middle of my madcap research period (laughs) of (laughs) Disney and Power Rangers. So I was watching a bunch of Defunct Land, um, not, you know, pretty recently leading up to this. Um, If you have not watched Defunct Land, you should. It is a bastion of, like, Disney and theme parks knowledge, and Kevin Perger is very good at his job. Um, (laughs) But anyway, so there's an episode about the Nickelodeon Hotel and Resort in Orlando that was, like, co-owned by Holiday Inn, and eventually they closed it and kind of reskinned the hotel in a way. Um, And... So he goes, so Kevin goes through the list of all of the Nickelodeon characters that showed up in the, at the hotel and he mentions Power Rangers at one point. And because this was after, you know, uh, Saban bought back Power Rangers and like they were showing on Nickelodeon. And I just sort of went, huh, you know, I wonder, did the Tower Rangers ever show up at Disney parks? And they did. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently starting around Time Force, they would have at least one ranger from that season. It seems like they only had one ranger costume from each season, but they would like have them kind of be characters in, I think specifically MGM, which would later become Hollywood Studios. So they specifically had them in the Disney Stars and Motor Cars parade. And so, and <laughs> the car that they had was like this, like, like this hot rod that they painted with like lightning and like this weird, like, circle on it we'll we'll link pic- we'll link links to it in the um in the show notes but i was just like oh my god somebody please put this car in the comics like it is so <laughs> ridiculous and like but yeah they had like jen like it was always a very random like rangers you wouldn't expect like none of them were like you know and like so like the list of like rangers that they had in the park would be the rangers you wouldn't expect like you know, you would expect they would have whole teams or maybe just the Red Ranger. But no, like, it was Jen starting with, like, because I guess they bought, like, Power Rangers around the time that, like, Mystic, not Mystic Force, um, Time Force was running. So you had Jen, Merrick, um, Cam, uh, Trent. Uh, you did actually have Jack, the Red SPD Ranger in the park. Uh... Then you had Vita. Who was the yellow Operation Overdrive Ranger? I cannot remember her name right Ronnie. now. She had the, Ronnie. Ronnie, yeah. Yeah, she, the, her and her socks. Um, Theo <laughs> and Ziggy. Like, obviously they, they like they had their, like, helmets on the entire time, so they were just the Rangers. But, like, that is, like, uh, the most odd assortment of Rangers that I would put in a theme park. The worst version of Forever Red. <laughs> yeah that's your next version of forever red is that you just pick the rangers that were like showing up at like mgm studios <laughs> i mean i watched that episode <laughs> yeah um but yeah i just i just found that a just an interesting piece of power rangers slash disney history is that they did try to at least get some value out of the fact that they had like these like costumed characters by like having meet and greets and like putting them in like the the ranger parade like not the ranger parade but the cars parade at like disney like disney hollywood studios oh my goodness 
Yeah. Oh, we'll put that in the show notes so you can go see for yourself. It is very interesting. All right. All right. So much like our last overview episode, we're going before we get to the end of the era, we're going to take some fan questions. These all came from our Twitter account. Uh, we appreciate everybody who like follows us there and uh, asked us questions. So we're going to start with questions from Caleb Wade. They ask, you have to, you have the chance to pit six rangers against each other, a la the Dino Thunder episode Thunderstorm, with two teams of three. Who is facing who and which team wins? Uh, so for my uh, trios match, I ended up with the team of Sky, Connor, and Rocky called Team Trash Boys. I think this is a great villain team. Um, <laughs> or who would be, get brainwashed and turn evil. Uh, right. And then uh, my other team would be uh, Ranger Slayer Kim, Sid, and Ziggy, called some of Sid's favorites. <laughs> and, uh, not just because of Power Rangers, but also um, I'm pretty sure just the way Ranger Slayer Kim is and uh, just Sid, uh, they would win. Very like this. This is a this is this is a clinch to win for them. But I feel like Ziggy would be the one to take out Sky because Sky's such a such an asshole and a moron. But <laughs> like, yeah, that that I that tracks. Yeah. So my team, I just went fully by the weirdest gimmicks here. Um, so my <laughs> first team is I, I'm calling them the Werewolves. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. Because it's going to be RJ, Billy, and Merrick. So your three Rangers that had wolf powers. And, and maybe they're the team that was like brainwashed because you know they're 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 you know <laughs> they're so wolf boys. They're sad. I, two, oh. two of them became werewolf boys too. So yeah, that's true. So maybe like you know you just manipulate that a little bit, and Billy just just you could brainwash him. Like he got into shit during MMPR. It's fine. <laughs> um, and then our second team would be the Suffering Sappho's. So you have Kelsey, Vita, and Izzy Garcia. <laughs> I know only one of them is a confirmed lesbian, but you're going to look me in the eye and say Kelsey from, like, Lightspeed Rescue wasn't a lesbian? Like, come on now. Yeah. 1-800-COME-ON-NOW. <laughs> Um, so they just, they defeat them and, like, get them, their heads back on with, uh, pure lesbian in- ingenuity and ass-kicking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Caleb also asked, fuck, Mary kill, Toxica, Necroli, or Tanaya Seven? I would marry Toxica. I love her. I, I love Jindrex and Toxica a lot. So I love her. She would be a fun wife, just fun person to have around the house. I didn't want to kill Tanaya Seven, so I'm just gonna go with. Uh, and I and like I I don't feel strongly about sex with mm-hmm. her, so I'm just like uh, go on a nice date or con dinner with her would be my Tanaya Seven. Uh, I'd kill Nikolai, more of elimination. Yeah, I'm a bit of a monster fucker, but I'm like I I'd like to live at the end of it. Mm. So. Okay, well, I'm about to tell on myself here. Um, <laughs> so my Mary, I would pick Toxica as well. I think she's cute and she's very Jessie from Team Rocket. Um, fuck, I would go with Necroli because the risk is worth the reward. Um, and then my kill was Tanaya, but let's be real, she'd most likely kill me instead. <laughs> and uh, Caleb, he has one more question left. Did you ever clock the spirit of the woods? Eratan is just nature. 
spelled backwards. Uh, Ashley groaned at this, actually. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if we went over it in the Turbo episode, but I just remember being like, Oh, really? Yeah, that was not a, that was not a great one. <laughs> so we'll move on to our next question from Chris the Beach Bum, who asks, What did you guys feel was something Disney did better than Saban? And, uh, um... Flat out, we went characters. We kind of touched it a little bit and motifs and stuff like that. But yeah, wow, these characters felt like people. Yeah, even for like characters that weren't super fleshed out, like say Matt, like I'm just going to use Maddie from like Mystic Force as an example. Um, even though I'd say like any of the characters from Operation Overdrive are probably less fleshed out than her. But like I'll, just using her as an example, because she kind of does feel like she gets the short end of the stick in her season. But, like, you still get an idea of the kind of person that she is. Like. Yeah. You know, you know that she's shy. That she, one of her ways that she interacts with people is getting recordings. But, like, you know, her character growth is that, you know, she's willing to call out people when they're being, like, jerks. Yeah. So, like, yeah. I also feel like Maddie would be, if, if she had to pick, like, a, like, a tour director that people love. I feel like she'd be a David Lynch fan. Yeah, I I, I can see it. <laughs> so like, yeah, even for cases where characters aren't very fleshed out, like you still get an idea of who they are. Like you know, even with Operation Overdrive, even if they're not very good characters, like I could still tell you, Dax is the dumbest man alive. <laughs> <laughs> he's very. He's definitely a himbo. Or yeah. Ronnie is definitely that white woman. She she probably has gone full Karen at some point, you know? Right. Or, like, Will is, you know, he can be, like, he's one of those guys who's a little bit too cocky about the kind of person that he is. And, like, he kind of has to learn to get over that slightly. Yeah. Um... You know, it's like you can all, it's like every one of them, as opposed to some of the early, like, characters in Power Rangers who are just like, smart guy, girl, leader dude, other girl. Let's just, let's just sprinkle in racism in there, you know, it's just like, ugh. Yeah, so, like, I feel like even for some of their shortcomings with diversity and, like, you know, sometimes maybe focusing too hard on one particular character over the other. At least, like, I can say that these people are characters. Yes. Um, um, the next question uh, Chris the Beach Bum asked is, why do you think Tommy helped create the Tyranno drones? Was his plan to use them as foot soldiers for the Dino Rangers, seeing the rest uh, of what he created was for the Dino Thunder team? Uh... I, I'm going to give with the joke answer of because his top mesagogue told him to. <laughs> yeah, really, like, Anton Mercer, technically, but mm-hmm. let, let's say things got freaky. His top told him to do it. Yeah, I mean, and I guess in a more serious way is that, like, I don't know. Because, like, the way that Tommy is at this point, I feel like he's doing everything out of a PTSD kind of perspective. Yeah, like, I I feel like if, he's like, I don't want the rangers to go through what I did and have to fight all these battles, so, you know, they're there for, a com- like, if there's an escalation, I need these foot soldiers for, like, you know, Pudgy Pig. I keep using Pudgy Pig as an example. I feel like Pudgy Pig is just kind of an elite example of the kind of weird villains you would get from, like, MMPR era. Also, it's like the first villain like I came across in MMPR. So, 
Just yeah. left a distinct memory. The other is the pumpkin wrapper. Definitely would put the, the Tyrannodrones <laughs> against the pumpkin wrapper. Yeah. Oh, I just thought of something that we probably not mentioned in the RPM episode. I did like the fact that, like, in RPM, like, the, like, the, uh, the kind of the drone villains, like, the ones that you kind of have your villain of the week. The grinders! Not, not the grinders. I'm oh, not talking about the no, grinders. Sorry. I'm talking about, like, the monster of the week. Yeah! Oh, they didn't like, speak or anything. Oh, like, this also carries over the grinders, though, so that, like, they didn't talk. Yeah, they, they weren't quippy or anything. They just kind of were like, we're monster of the week. Yeah! And they would make the weird robot noise. But I just thought that I, I, I probably that was probably a cost cutting measure of not wanting to pay like voiceover actors. But like I think it like worked pretty well. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so kind of moving back onto our questions. Like, yeah, we hadn't thought too hard about the Tyrannodrone thing, and I'm just gonna just say it's Tommy's PTSD. Um. That kind yeah. of kicked in, and it kind of backfired on him. Yeah, um, I, I'm going with that answer. I just, I just wanted to make the joke answer because his top told him to. Yeah, I mean, sh- why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Heather, as a, from our, our next question asker, right? That's Querent, and she asked, which season did the secretly a robot arc better, Overdrive or RPM? Uh, we went with RPM. Uh, a lot of the groundwork. To that twist at the very end was, uh, you saw it a lot with Dylan and later Tanaya. Like, there was all this, oh, oh, Dylan's half robot. And, oh, Tanaya's not really a cyborg, she's human. And, oh, there's this whole thing outside of the the dumb city of Corinth where, like, people are in these, like, camps making these cyborgs and stuff. So there's all this groundwork that when the twist happened, you were still, like caught off guard with it right because nobody else got hinted but then when you're looking at the breadcrumbs trailing to it Mm -hmm. like it made a lot of sense because like oh yeah well dylan tanaya then you know vasquez and hicks and a lot of the population of corinth that makes sense no yeah 100 percent um overdrive like overdrive was a good idea like i mentioned earlier like having that twist was not a terrible idea, but the execution could have done been done way better. And the emotional weight of it was too little too late. Yeah. Um, I feel like if maybe they had something that they laid the breadcrumbs for it a little bit more, like similar to what they did with Nick uh, and Mystic Force, it could have turned out way better. And maybe like, maybe you could have even done something where you find that out at like early on in the season. And then you kind of deal with the fallout. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, Overdrive, I just wish they had done more with it. Mostly. Yeah, mostly. Uh, Paul Statler Pace asked, what New Zealand actor playing American had the most convincing accent who had the least convincing accent? So, um, I'm gonna let you pick uh, the most convincing. Let's talk about our two picks for most convincing. Real quick. Okay, so... We like our we kind of agreed on this, um, even though we came with this separately. Uh so Olivia Tennant was Sid's pick. Yeah, she um I keep forgetting she's from New Zealand. Yeah, like she did a very good job at like kind of like especially because like she kind of had not a flat affectation, but like kind of the the smart, like a little bit more sophisticated air a little bit. She also, you know, sounded like she was, you know, raised in a government think tank and yeah. had emotional, st- like, stunted growth. 
Yeah. And my my pick was uh, David Delantour. Um, I, I know we just harp on RJ so much in this, like, episode. <laughs> but, like, but, like, and when you, like, when I compare him to my least convincing, it'll make sense. Um, so... RJ kind of had that 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 beach like that beach bum like California boy accent, yeah. But like I, like he managed to just lean into it so much that like I could could not pick up on the fact that he was like from New Zealand, yeah. And like that's like a particular thing is like that that sometimes happens where like actors that are from another country will often just pick a particular accent that they want to latch onto for better or for worse, yeah. Um, like, I just remember, like, the actor who played Bill on, uh, on True Blood doing this, at, uh, re- like, this one interview once where he was talking about kind of the, uh, the coaching he went through because he's very British yeah. when you listen to him, but then he plays this, like, character with this really deep Southern accent in True Blood, so he kind of did this, like, rolling thing where he kind of was just talking through his, like, dialect coaching where how he was able to kind of, like, okay, I'm going to go from my accent here to this particular British accent, then this accent, then then it, like, slowly just rolls into, like, that southern accent. Yeah. And, like, I feel like, I I don't know what David's approach was here, but I feel like it had to be similar, that it just felt very seamless. Yeah. And, I I, again, one of those actors that I just forgot, he's from New Zealand. Uh, Since you ended that, let's bookend that with uh, your least convincing. (sighs) Gareth Yoon is Dax. Um, <laughs> I went over it in the episode, but, like, he tries to do similar, but he's trying to do a Keanu Reeves impression. And it doesn't always work. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and that season had everyone just slipping all over the place, too, but he definitely stood out. Yeah, because it's just, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, everybody was slipping all over the place. Like, I would say out of all of the seasons, probably that and I maybe Ninja Storm. Oh, yeah. Had the most slip-ups. Was Cam's actor actually from New Zealand? He, the, uh, Ninja Storm and also Dino Thunder actually also had a lot of Australian actors. Cam's okay. accent was from Australia. Jason yeah, was from I, Australia. I couldn't clock that. So, like... Yeah. Because um, that's why I asked, because I was like, was he one of those actors that they got from Canada? Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Okay. It's actually, it's actually interesting to hear his actual accent, because it's like, whoa, I keep forgetting you're from Australia. <laughs> yeah, but, like, Gareth, yeah, Gareth was, I think he was just so egregious because he was trying to, not even just Keanu Reeves in any movie, it was Keanu Reeves and Bill and Ted that he was trying <laughs> to do, and it just did not work. And, like, yeah, he was slipping all over the place, and it's like, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have to say number one was just, for me, was uh, Jason uh, Napier Robertson, uh, the guy who played Connor. Oh, uh, God, he was he was so bad. He eventually just gave up on some lines, or the director was like, that was the best line read. I know your accent slipped, but we're going to keep it. He He's actually, I'm going to say this, he's not a bad actor. Like, he was a very no. good Connor it's just like him trying to get an American accent was just so hard for him that that just some takes that sound like they just didn't eat like they it was like no we're done for the day. Yeah, it's like Disney's only paying for so much film. We gotta get we gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so kind of moving on to our final question here from Dune Star Turbo Power, uh, they ask, which Ranger of the Disney era do you think had the best character arc? 
And we kind of had to think about this a little bit because, like, as we said, like, they did so much better with characters this era that, like, we kind of had to, like, sort through, like, oh, well, who do we think was, like, really progressed in the, from, like, point A to point B in such a way that really made it compelling and, like, they clearly had, like, they went on an emotional journey. And I think at the end of it, we both agreed it's Casey from uh, Jungle Fury. Yeah, Casey, uh, you know, he did, he started out, a, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was a very relatable position where he started out with, where he started out, like, he was he was a rookie, probably one of the better, like, better rookie Reds, probably one of the right. best ones. Um, I, I would say Jack would be up there if Sky wasn't involved, but we're not going to talk about that. Right. Uh, <laughs> but like Casey, he's new to everything. He's new to Pai Shua. He doesn't know why he was even chosen. And he's thrown into this world and he ha- and his entire character arc is finding himself among people who have studied this way longer than him. Right. And, and he just constantly feels lost. He And uh, it really culminates at the end when he fails his test and he cannot be told why he failed and then finds his own way through basically like, well, I'm going to save Jared. Yeah. And it doesn't feel contrivy or anything because it's points out at the end of it, it's like you passed your pie swa master's test because you are sure of yourself now. That was something we couldn't tell you earlier when you asked RJ, how do I pass the test? You showed that you were just, unsure and unready now you you did things so confidently with getting jared back yeah you're paishwa master now yeah like i just i love that entire arc especially like when he constantly gets told like jared's too far gone like and clearly you're just feeling guilty about this like you don't need to do this but he still pushes forward because he knows it's the right thing to do like even if even if jared is too far gone like, he still has to go in and know for himself. Yeah. And so, I feel like that is that is so far removed from, like, the kid who was just, like, being pushed around on his first day at the academy, you know? Uh, I'm gonna say that he would not get booed at his hometown arena. <laughs> and he would not throw himself through a flaming table for the love and adulation of others. <laughs> <sighs> we will never stop dunking on Cody Rhodes. Unless Cody Rhodes wants a funner podcast, then we'll shut up about you forever. Right. Cody Rhodes, pay up. <laughs> pay up. We'll, sh- we'll we'll be sick of fence if you pay us enough money. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, it's, it's like that joke about Shaq. He's like, he probably endorsed genocide if the check was large enough. <laughs> uh so now we're uh ha- now we're at the uh the end of the era. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you pointed out that compared to the kind of well, well publicized and documented uh, Disney bio Fox family, there's just not a lot because so much of it is just kind of like hearsay. Yeah, and like, like literally, I tried to find more sources that weren't the Ranger Wiki, but it was really hard. I I tried, guys. It just kind of ties back to Power Ranger fans just centralize everything around Power Rangers. It's one of those, it's like, I feel like a lot of, like, Jedi, when when RPM, uh, when they finished up RPM and said that was it, a lot of the Jedi's programming was gone by then, too. Like, 
it really felt like that was kind of like the clinging on thing for Fox family. And Desi's like, oh, finally, we, we don't have to deal with this. Yeah. And so with Power Rangers, as we know, they wanted to cancel during Wild Force. Um, you know, even like the last episode of Wild Force is called The End of the Power Rangers. But the ratings were good enough to continue. But due to the expense of the show, they decided that they were going to go ahead and move the production to New Zealand to save money. And everybody but the stunt team was fired. Um, especially, and I mentioned this earlier, is that like when ABC Family was, you know, first really starting out, like Power Rangers consisted of a lot of the programming. Oh, because yeah. like that's what they had access to in the library. And, and, and like <laughs> th- now the 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 Power Rangers Black it was an hour Power Rangers Black basically. And you had Power Rangers Generations where they would just pick it like the best of each season. They would go from Mighty Morphin up to what like up to whatever season basically. And so you would have when I was watching it with Ninja Storm, it would be Power, it would be Mighty Morphin up to Wild Force, and you just go through and pick kind of big important episodes and everything, and then they would do the newer, the newer season, Ninja Storm, Dino Thunder, all that. So um, that, that now that makes sense of why they did Power Rangers Generations. Yeah, because they needed to fill in programming blocks and, you know, they had the Saban library, why not? Yeah. And I tried to get more an idea of, like, maybe they also aired any of the other Saban properties, like Mystic Knights or Big Bad Beetleborgs, but I couldn't really find any information I on that. did not remember them airing those, so... Granted, like, Power Rangers was, like, the known property out of those. Like, Big Bad Beetleborgs' like, popularity kind of faded by, like the time Disney had, like, purchased it. So I'm sure just those tapes just sat in a library somewhere gathering dust. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, there's some stuff that they kicked around. Like, apparently, like, they kicked around just starting, like, starting the whole series from scratch and not connecting it with anything else. But, like, but you kind of saw that a little bit in Ninja Storm. And then, like, I guess at some point they decided, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that happens so often in Power Rangers with that with that plot thread. Yeah, and then apparently they were kicking around the idea of doing a Power Rangers cartoon to air on Disney XD, formerly, like, Toon Disney, or uh, which I think also had a bit of the Jetix stuff, between 2007 and 2009. They were kicking that idea around, but it was dropped for unknown reasons, which I would have been interested in seeing something like that. It's kind of surprising that Power Rangers hasn't done anything animated. Um, And then, like... Like I said, there was a lot of things where, like, from, like, 2006 on, a lot of ABC affiliates didn't re- refuse to air the show due to it not being FCC-compliant on educational informational content aimed at children. Um, then, like, according to RPM produce- producer R- uh, Eddie Gazalian, like, Disney was embarrassed to be even airing the show, let alone producing it. I think I remember uh, the thing Bruce Kalish, I think, also said was just, like, of how short the budget was, like, he was like, the writer's room had no chairs. Yeah, and, like, that's the thing, is that I just, thinking about it, especially a lot of what was in the Saban catalog that they did use, like, Metabots and... I'm not sure if Metabots was, but I know Digimon was. Yeah. So, like, a lot of stuff that they got from the Saban catalog doesn't really fit in that well with, like, Disney programming, like, even if you consider the kind of stuff that they would put on Disney XD, like, you know, after they lost Power Rangers, like, Gravity Falls, DuckTales, 
2018, um, Motor City, like, I, I can't remember all the Disney XD programming, like, even the stuff that's more oriented towards boys, like, it still kind of had a Disney air about it, yeah. whereas, like, you couldn't really Disney-fy Power Rangers, like, yeah, and you couldn't really Disney-fy Digimon, like, it just didn't quite fit in with the the overall, like, and I, I'm sure that was part of it, too, is that they just were like, how does this even fit in with our, our, our quote, quote, brand? And I'm also wondering if, like, stuff like Metabots and Beyblade, like, they kind of bought because they're like, well, we have this anime show and a bunch of others from Saban, or Saban had it in his catalog but never aired it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's why you had JetX. Right. Now, so, another part of this was is that, um, you know, they had to confer with all of these international arms of the Family Channel and Fox Kids when they bought the channel. Like, literally, I was, I, I only skimmed that article Kurt sent about, like, um, Saban because I didn't have enough time. But basically, there was this New Yorker article about the history of Haim Saban, and it was mostly about his influence of, like, American and Israeli politics. Um, but, like... There's this part where he talked about, like, when they had to, like, confer with Brazil with, um, with the Fox family buyout, and they literally got Bill Clinton to make some phone calls. Which is fucking wild. That's a, such a yeah. footnote that I just found out today. Um, <laughs> but, like, yeah, so part of the deal was that they also got Fox Kids Europe, which was its own channel that broadcast in, like, 53 countries. And, like, apparently when they swapped it over to Jetix, Jetix Europe... Like, Power Rangers did really well over there. And, like, they kept wanting to cancel... Apparently, they kept wanting to cancel the series. Like, uh, apparently, they wanted to cancel it around Dino Thunder. But Jetix was like, no, this is doing really good for us. Don't cancel this. So they kind of kept it going up until, like, again, Jungle Fury was going to be the planned last season. But then, like, I think due to contractual obligations with Jetix and Bondi... They they allowed RPM, and then that was going to be it. Yeah, you pretty much had the, uh, again, you still had the catalog, so we're just going to put old Mighty Morphin episodes up, and we're going to remaster them, quote-unquote. By that, we're just going to put a bunch of, like, Photoshop After Effects on it and make them, make them weird. Yeah, and then we're going to give up on that halfway through season one, because, oh my god, it's 60 episodes. <laughs> 60 episodes. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, something, something else happened. Like, this wasn't, this is not the end of our story, so to speak. Yeah, like, yeah, this is not, this is not the end of Power Rangers, because, um, so Saban comes back in 2010 to buy back the series, because he only had to be, so, like, he only had to not be involved with children's programming for two years after the purchase. He just went and did other stuff, like buying out Univision and funding Israel, um, so, you should funding, know. Funding also, yeah. like, retirement homes and stuff from what somebody I know who lives in that, that, Calif- that, that area of California, so. Weird, I can see it. Um, but yeah, so 2010, Saban comes and buys back the series. Now, we should note, so when they did, so when Disney did that, uh, Disney and Fox Family's, like, accountants did that valuation, they basically valued that Disney paid in that whole $5.2 billion deal that they paid $2 billion for the whole Fox family library and assets, which included all of Power Rangers. And then Saban bought it back for $43 million. <laughs> 
And it, it was still valued, like, higher than that, too, when he bought it back. Yeah, like, because, like, like we said, like, around that time, they were estimating that Power Rangers had generated $5 billion worth of merchandising. Like, that's a lot. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, yes, uh, can I get this for $43 million? Yeah, I'm sure Disney was like, just fucking take it. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, that's one of the Gen X things off of our, like, that's one of the Fox deals off of our butt. Now, yeah. I, I tried to confirm, like, did he buy back everything else in, like, kind of that, like, Toku Toei catalog as well? But I couldn't really confirm that, just the Power Rangers. Yeah. But I have to assume he also got back the rights to, like, Mystic Knights, like, Master Rider, even though he can't do anything with that, Beetleborgs, <laughs> I, whatever. I th- I'm thinking at the very least definitely like vr troopers and beatback beetleborgs because they got netflix releases i know vr troopers got a uh shout factory dvd set which uh he worked with shout factory a lot for not only the power rangers dvds but i know he helped with branching over with toei to get the uh sentai over here yeah so yeah, so I'm just assuming they're just like, okay, you can buy Power Rangers and we'll just throw in, like, whatever, all these other bullshit things we never used. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I feel like part of the reason, because Saban is a businessman, uh, yeah, so at that point, he would, like, it's gonna be, like, coming up on the 20th anniversary, uh, 90s nostalgia was definitely hitting in the early 2010s. Like, even, uh, in your, like, even if you didn't think so, I'm like, oh my god, I just remember, like, a bunch of early 90s nostalgia starting to hit then. So I feel like he was trying to be smart enough to ride that wave. Yeah, and he made a deal with Nickelodeon to air old episodes on the Nicktoons channel, as well as start new series. Um, so, yeah, that's... It's it, like it, like the whole like story of Power Rangers on Disney just kind of ends on a real whimper because they just didn't really want anything to do with it. Because I'm like, and knowing more history about the Family Channel, I don't blame them. Honestly. It's like this like, reminds me of Michael Eisner. Yeah, even like in that case, like you read the book and because you were saying stuff like, oh well, why did production not like 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 why did people say Disney didn't care about it? It's like production clearly cleared, but like. The executives certainly did it. And, like, even for cases of, like, shows like Lost or Desperate Housewives that were big hits for the network, you'd have Michael Eisner, Bill, Bob Iger talking shit about them because they think it didn't, they didn't think it would work. But, like, and they were, but they were also associated with people that developed the shows and they were big hits that also had just left the network. Oh, my goodness. So, like, yeah, that was, um... Yeah, it's it's certainly something. Yes. But yeah, that's kind of how it ends, is that Saban sold out Power Rangers for a $1.5 billion payday and uh, bought it back for $43 million. You cannot read this man's poker face. No, you cannot. <laughs> and like, I think it's like, I we'll get to it when we get to like the end of the Neo Saban era. It's like he sold it to Hasbro for way more than he bought it back from Disney for. <laughs> I I kind of love this. I, I'm not endorsing billionaires, but I kind of love this man and his like, you know what? I gamble with children's shows. Yeah. It's like Saban is very, in- I don't, 
I can't endorse anything that man does, but I find him very interesting. Yeah. And after this entire experience, I also could say the same about Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg. It's like, you know what? At least they're like eccentric people with a lot of money. I don't like it when people with a lot of money be like, I'm a plain dude. Like, shut up, Jeff Bezos. We know you're not a plain asshole, okay? Yeah, I mean, granted, Jeffrey Katzenberg was apparently in the pockets of some uh, L.A. City Council members about home about the homelessness issue in L.A. Um, but, you know, yeah. you could also say that man also funded Quibi. Yes. So... Anyway, um, kind of after all of that, how do we feel about the Disney era as a whole? I think we, we, we both, I, I generally think we both liked it, but we both got different things out of it. Yeah. And for one of the things, uh, I got, a def, the, the biggest thing I got out of it was, uh, best thing about this entire podcast is, uh, going back and I have, like, Ashley has a fresh set of eyes that are just not really a part of fandom but also i'm an older and wiser person and um i remember like for ages even at the kind of the beginning of this podcast i i you know with the whole split down the middle which was better disney or saban era and i'd be like it's disney i wish you guys would stop watching saban era and roast in the glasses and uh i don't fall into that trap anymore i i've actually even like I've learned to appreciate both. Um, I'm still going to say Disney years are better, but it's yeah. like they've grown from a lot of the foundation of that end of the first Saban era uh, to where like you had a very interesting show and you meld that with like 2000s television morphing from more syndicated to serialized. Like, yeah, there's a lot of good things that I think went on there. Uh, and yeah, the company may have not cared too much about the, what what go on because it was a shitty deal. Uh, but the production teams and 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 the writers and everything definitely made some great shows. I would really introduce to anyone who would just be like, I'm not sure if I want to watch anything beyond Mighty Morphin. Uh, this this decade even made me like Tommy, which is very hard. I'm not a big Tommy fan. Uh, so yeah, my biggest thing is, like, I don't want to draw a line anymore. They both are great, both, like, both kind of, it's, it's just a progression. Um, yeah, that just, I will say this decade I favor a little bit more, but, yeah, it's like, I am a calmer, uh, older person now going through this. Right. Um, well, I do think a lot of the groundwork for how this era turned out was laid down in the last three years of the first Saban era. When I say that, I mean specifically Lightspeed Rescue, Time Force, and Wild Force, even though there was some crossover with those last two. Uh, I feel like the producers of the show learned all the right lessons from those three years to help build the show into something that was actually pretty good genre television, not just giant toy advertisements. Though there's still some of that. Well, it's not perfect by any means, and we've gone over it in detail in this past, like, year, as well as, you know, this, even this episode. But, like, when the worst I can say about any one season is that, you know, it's kind of boring, like with Operation Overdrive. I feel like this particular era was moving the show in the right direction of, like, what Power Rangers can and should be. All right, that's it for our show this month. 
Uh, we would like to thank Kate Nix for our theme song. You could find her on Twitter and Instagram at the Goblin Mother. You can also find her at katenix.com or you can find her at Bandcamp, merch, and streaming. As of the publishing of this podcast, the Lullaby Lounge Novelty Hour is no more, but a new thing will be rising in its place uh, this year, and you can still watch old episodes on Kate's YouTube channel, so stay tuned. We'd also like to thank Joe Hunter for art. You can find him on Twitter at Joe underscore Hunter, as well as Patreon. You can also find him on Instagram at Joe Bloody Hunter. He has a comic with Land Pitts called Beast Heart Strikers, and you can go find that on Comixology, as well as you can order the Radiant Black issue number four, where he wrote a backup at your local comic book store. He also has a threadless, joehunter.threadless.com. Uh, we'd like to thank Kurt Yoder for the editing. You can find him at Great SG Creations on Etsy for Perler Art, as well as his store uh, Twitter, Great SG Pixels, and his personal Twitter, The Great SG. Our wrestler of the podcast is actual Disney princess, badass, and soon to be mom, Candace LeRae. Uh, Candace LeRae uh, has been wrestling for a very long time, and she she really loves the the snot out of Disney. I think Ashley pointed out like one of her gear inspirations was like a deep cut of Disney. It was Captain EO. Yeah, I don't know Captain EO. <laughs> that's, that's a whole how, other episode. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> that just shows you how deep of a cut that is. And you yeah. can find her uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Candice LeRae. And as always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at MissKittyF. Uh, I use Twitter a bit more, uh, but I am trying to use Instagram a bit more too. Um, you can also find uh, link trees on both of those accounts to my stores, uh, which has my um, my square shop that has all of my masks, blankets, zines, all that fun stuff, as well as uh, my itch.io page and my Gumroad page where you can buy my comics digitally. All right, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Velociriker. I have my candle and soap store. Coda's Magical Crafts, you can find it on Etsy at Coda's Magical Crafts. And Twitter as well as at Coda's Crafts. You can also find Ranger Splane on Twitter and Instagram. We probably should use Instagram a little bit more. You can find us uh, at Ranger Splane. Our Patreon is also uh, at Ranger Splane. And our WordPress is rangersplane.wordpress.com. Wherever you are listening to us, give us a five-star review to help us beat the algorithms. Please. Even if you can't contribute to us on Patreon, that helps us out a lot. Yeah. And that's it for this month. Next month, we're taking a break from Ranger watching and going to Ireland for Mystic Knights of Tirnanog. Until then, stay safe and may the power protect you. Go. Ranger.